0: It's been about two months since the last talk and those of you who attended the last talk would remember that it was, the title was Blessed are the Merciful for they shall obtain mercy and in that talk the basic uh, message is that only those who are merciful shall obtain mercy on the last day. and after that talk I was trying to make a decision of what talk to do next. Whether I should continue on this talk, whether I should do a life of saint or whether I should do a talk on the upbringing of children because some people have asked me and overseas as well that they're very interested, um, they they especially like the talks on the upbringing of children uh, from an orthodox perspective. So I didn't know what to do so I decided to do the three-in-one, in in a way, by doing the life of Saint Nectarius. We also will be talking about the upbringing of children, because we'll see the way he was brought up, as well as the fact that he performed many, many works of mercy. So it actually puts into practice what we learnt last week, last two months ago. So who is Saint Nectarius? Saint Nectarius, as he's called, the Wonder Worker. He's one of the best-known saints of the Greek Orthodox Church. Anywhere in the world where there are Greek Orthodox, you will certainly find a church dedicated to St Nectarius, many of which have also parts of his relics. For example, here in Australia, uh, in the Greek Archdiocese, there, are parish, there is a parish of St Nectarius in, here in Sydney, Burwood, there's one in Queensland, there's one in Victoria, there's one in Western Australia, and there's also a monastery dedicated to him in South Australia. Northern Territory doesn't get one because they've only got one Greek church up there which is the, which is dedicated to Saint Nicholas the wonderworker. Today thousands upon thousands per month visit the tomb of Saint Nectarius in Aegina Greece to pray to him and ask for his loving prayers which always seem to be answered. Now countless miracles have been reported in Australia, Canada, England, Europe, South Africa and United States. Wherever St Nectarius is prayed to, there are always uh, miracles. And it says here that well-documented are the cases of deliverance from, for example, demonic possession, uh, sterility for men that can't have children, or barrenness for women, and other dangerous circumstances. He's well known for his cancer cures. Some call him the patron saint of cancer. And um, many have prayed to him for deafness, stammering, fractures, paralysis, polio, arthritis, fever, hemorrhaging, stones, and prostatitis, which he himself suffered in his lifetime. He suffered a lot towards the end of his life with the disease of prostatitis. So men that have that problem also pray to him for that meningitis, migraines, ulcers, gangrene tuberculosis all flee before St. Nectarius for whom absolutely nothing is incurable. So he is, that's why he has the, the, the title wonder Worker. and by the way he is ranked on the same level as all those other great saints like St. Saint Nicholas, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great. He is a great father of the Orthodox Church who has lived close to our times. He went to hospital, then he died there, and he was in a room with someone else. A beautiful fragrance was emitted by his holy body, filling the whole room. Many came to venerate his holy relics prior to his burial. So many, the, so many faithful attended his funeral service and burial that it was almost impossible to find a place to stay on the island of Egyna. So he died in Greece in Athens, I think, and then from there, they had to take his body to Piraeus, which is the port, and there even more myrrh was coming out, and they took him over by boat to Aegina for the funeral for where his monastery was with his nuns. And it says here that there were so many people that attended his funeral that they couldn't find anywhere in, on, on the island to stay. With amazement, people noted a fragrant fluid that drenched his hair and beard. So the thousands and thousands of people that were there actually noticed that his hair and beard was drenched with this beautifully-smelling, fragrant uh, fluid, which we call myrrh. The recognition of him as a saint spread rapidly after his repose. Even after five months, see, they they buried him, but then the nuns wanted to put him into a proper tomb because there were so many people coming, they decided to put him like in a marble tomb. So they opened up his grave after five months and what did they find? They found him intact in every respect and emitted a wonderful and heavenly fragrance. In other words, he did not show any signs of decomposition which is characteristic of orthodox saints. Also, monastics, for example, manathos, uh, another well-known fact is that when they, or when more monastics die, that they do not uh, go into what's called rigor mortis, their body does not become stiff at all, their body stays soft for days on end, and this is a special blessing that God gives to those who follow Christ's commandments with all their heart and soul and mind. So that was after five months. And God, uh, I think they also opened him, opened up his tomb three years later, which we'll talk about again in the next talk the talk after, because some unbelieving bishop didn't believe that he was incorrupt, so he demanded that he be opened up, et cetera. But we'll come to that later. And again, he was found incorrupt and full of fragrance. The Orthodox Church proclaimed him a saint, on April the 20th, 1961, which was 41 years after he reposed. So now that we have that, a little bit of background, we now come to... I always say to people, when we go to church on a feast day, it might be this feast day of St Nicholas or this feast day of St George or the feast day of St Nectarius, it's always good to have knowledge of the life of the saint or of the feast, or of the occasion. If it's, the resur- if it's Christ's resurrection, to learn a bit about that, read some orthodox books on that. If it's on the birth of Christ, then we find out about that, the Domitian Mother of God. We have to be knowledgeable of what our faith teaches instead of going there like sheep and sitting there, and especially when it's in another language, it makes things worse. Like the curse grid icon, that Russian that Russian icon which we like this the cursed grid icon which which is um around seven hundred years old. Now that that's come to Australia a number of times and I've been, I've venerated it, but yet I didn't really know anything about it and I felt like a bit strange that what is this icon? What is it what's the history of this icon? What's so special about this icon? And that's what made me to put together this book so that people, because not only I didn't know, even some Russians, it's, and it's there, and it's a Russian icon, even some of them didn't even know the history, and especially other, other uh, groups like the Greeks or Serbians, didn't really know the history of this icon. So we put this book together, and people have said that after they've read the book that they now have more of a veneration for the icon. And it's the same when we read a life of saint. People have said, once I, read, once I read the life of saint of such and such a saint, I feel closer to him. I can pray more to him, I know about his life, I can relate to his life to some degree, etc. So it is very important that we study um, what the church has given us through the writings of the saints and their lives. Of course, top priority would be the Bible. But the Bible on its own is dangerous. That's what's happened to a lot of Protestant groups. They've taken the Bible on its own. They don't connect it with any tradition. Even though it was tradition, it was the, they say, oh, we don't need the church to interpret the Bible. We interpret it the way that we want. But the poor things don't know that the Bible, which books go into the Bible, because many centuries ago there was a lot of books, a lot of epistles, a lot of gospels, and people didn't know which ones are real, which ones are not real, which ones should go into the into the into the um, Bible or not. It was the church that made that decision via synod, which exact gospels would be recognised and which exact epistles etc would be recognised. So now it was the church that did that, and those those people that I just said actually reject and say we don't need the church to interpret. The Bible for us. We interpret it in our own way. Even though St. Paul says that you can't just be a free interpreter. That's where we lead into heresy and falsehood etc. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Isn't that what Christ himself said? What does that mean? Those who are pure in heart will see God. Those who are pure in heart will be able to interpret the word of God. And those who are pure in heart are our saints who did battle with their passions and struggled and overcome, overcame their passions with Christ's help. But we are full of passions. We have jealousy, we have hate, we have anger, we have ego, we have revenge, all these things that are in us. Not that the saints didn't have that, but they struggled. And once they struggled and they reach this purity that, God is, that Christ is talking about, then they are able to give us the pure teachings of God, the interpretations. So therefore, it's not for us who are full of passions to try and interpret the holy word of God. So let us continue. St Nectarius' birth. Our holy father Nectarius was born on the 1st of October 1846, approximately 167 years ago in a town called Silivria in eastern Thrace. Now, the, that's, that is in the European part of Turkey. Turkey has uh, its part of Turkey's, um, it consists of Asia Minor, but also has part of its countries also in Europe. The Greeks who lived there were under Ottoman rule. Now, some of you might not have heard of Ottoman rule, Basically, it was that the Turks controlled that area. And I'm going to come to that in a minute. Because we can't let that go. Because we need to know exactly what is this Ottoman rule. So we can understand how these Greeks and how these Christians lived. So that we can understand the life better. So his parents' names were Demos and Maria Kephalas. Kephalas is a Greek word for head, actually. Were and they were pious, orthodox Christians, but were very, very poor. He was the fifth of six children and was given the name Anastasios at holy baptism. So until his tonsure, we will refer to him as Anastasios so we can get the feel of the the story, not in disrespect to the saint, but just so that we can see the progress. His parents worked hard to provide for their family and raise their children in the orthodox faith and piety. And we'll see how hard that was in a minute. His father was a hard worker who many times found it hard to, find, to feed his family. He worked wherever he could find work, sometimes as a farmer, sometimes at sea. He was known for his humility. What's this humility? This word, as I've said in the past, has be pretty much uh, been lost from the English language. People really don't know what humility means because today... We hear the slogan, self-esteem, self-confidence, feeling good about yourself and all these things, which, unfortunately, is diametrically opposed to humility. Blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit, Christ teaches. So we have to, and I'm going to speak a lot about this humility. Knowing the importance of the virtue of humility, demos, in other words, Anastasius's father taught his children humility both by word and example. Not enough just to say to the children, you have to be humble, or you have to love Christ, or you have to pray, or you have to be good. But superior to um, the word is example for children. Children learn through example. His mother was often sad because of their poverty, their situation under the Turks, and for their future, especially for the future of her children. He also had a grandmother that lived with them, in Greek, yaya. So living with, um, in Serbian, what's it, Serbian, baba or something, isn't it? And in Russian, babushka, that's the one. So we all all know now... um, Living with Anastasios' family was his grandmother, who he referred to obviously as Yaya. He was especially close to his grandmother, and he loved her very much. She would pray for the safety of her of the family, but especially she prayed for her favourite grandchild, Anastasios. Later on in his life, he would often remember his dear Yaya, his dear grandmother. this is important, why did he often call back on his grandmother even maybe more than his parents because the the grandmother brought him up obviously when you've got a lot of children sometimes uh, the parents are very busy etc and sometimes the younger children, he was fifth, are taken care of by the older children or some relative. In this case he was taken care of by his grandmother. Now whoever we are, whoever we are taken care of by, that's who we're going to connect with. In the modern day, they call it bonding, that mothers need to bond with their children. I met once a, 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 a woman who said to me that she becomes very emotional when she thinks about her father and the father and the father, and she can't understand why this thing for her father, but she doesn't really have any feeling for her mother. And I said to her, Because you were taken care of him by young. She goes, How do you know? I go, i 'm guessing from what you 're telling me, go go and ask your father, so she went and asked the father, which she had never asked before, and the father said that your mother had three jobs, and I took care of you, I fed you, I changed your nappy, etc., etc. So there is the bond. so she is connected, she, has, she bonded with her father, but not with her mother, and that also gives us the um, understanding that children need to bond especially with their mothers unless there's some circumstances beyond in other words mothers have to think very 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 hard when they decide to work as i said sometimes it's necessary sometimes it's not necessary sometimes People do it because they just want a more of an expensive lifestyle. And you've got to think to yourself, is that worth it for me not to bond with my child? Today, other people take care of our children. Preschools, schools when children go to school at five, which is way too young. In Europe it's Russia and that Greece, seven, but five is too young. Even here in in, in Australia, you can even take a child to school at four and a half, depending on its birthday very young but today not only do our children brought up by either preschool or teachers at school etc but also our children are being brought up by the television so like Saint Nectarius felt this bond to his grandmother today our children are growing up with a bond towards whatever the TV because their TV is their nanny. So whatever they're watching on TV, that's who they're connecting with. Some, it could be a Spider-Man for some boys. Other girls, it could be some other poor, confused, deluded girl there that, um, on TV. And that's who they actually are relating to. That's who they're connecting to. And then parents wonder why they've lost their children. Don't underestimate the television. It's very, very powerful. Now, as I've said before, psychologists have finally, even though uh, it's better than nothing, but they've actually said that children shouldn't watch TV before two years old. That's something. I say much older, because it still affects the children morally. But they have seen that the children do get affected mentally, quite quite deeply. Now, to understand better the life of St. Joseph, we need to learn more about the history of the Ottoman Empire. Now, some of you don't like history. I'll try and make it quick and, you know, as interesting as possible. The Ottoman Empire was a Turkish empire, which lasted for more than 600 years, around 620, 630 years, from 1299, roundabout, to 1923. It was one of the most powerful empires in the world during the 15th and 16th centuries. It spread from Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, beginning around 1300, as I said, and at the height of the the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, it included most of southeastern Europe and the Middle East. It consisted of modern Hungary, Serbia, Bosnia, Kosovo. Kosovo fell at 1389... Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, northern Greece that fell around 1393, Constantinople fell in 1453, Albania 1466, Armenia, and even they went as far up as part of the Ukraine. They took over Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, parts of A- Arabia and Iraq, much of the co- of the northern coastal strip of North Africa, of, sorry, of North Africa, top part there, So they spread rapidly and most of the areas they took over was the previous Byzantine Empire, the Orthodox Greek Empire. The Greek Orthodox suffered greatly from the pressures and the hardships inflicted on them by the Turks. Not only were their properties in danger but also their lives. The Greeks endured nightly assaults and thieving so it was very difficult living under them now. When the Greek War of Independence began in 1821, which is not even 100 year, sorry about 200 years ago that lasted until 1832. That's when the Greeks were trying to become free from them. And there was all these revolts. and, and the Greek War of Independence lasted from 1821 to 1832. The Greek sorry, the Turks, out of revenge began a cruel persecution of the Greeks still under their rule. Wherever they had authority, they persecuted the Greeks and tormented them as revenge. And let's look at some examples. Number one, these persecutions, which started from 1821 when the Greeks tried to get their independence, was especially intense in Thrace, which is where St Nectarius was from, and on the island of Samothrace, the Turks everywhere massacred the men who refused to deny their Christian faith and become Muslims and took the women and children away with them. Many apostasized means that they denied their orthodoxy, out of fear and torture, and children were sold into slavery and forced to become Muslims. Some of these children and adults later returned to orthodoxy and became martyrs because once you become Muslim, then if you want to return to Christianity, you basically just, you can't do that in their areas. And they were... Given the opportunity to stay in the, in the religion of Islam, they said no and they died. And we have many, many what we call new martyrs. Some who didn't deny but died because they wouldn't deny. Um, and some who did deny and become Muslim but later on decided to return back to orthodoxy. 10,000 clergy were killed in Constantinople and the provinces around. On the island of Hios, this is important because we're going to come back to Hios later, 200 monks of the monastery, which is called New Monastery, were slaughtered. The metropolitan of the island was killed. Further, 23,000 of the inhabitants were slaughtered. 5,000 were sold into slavery. Number four, the Greek monastics and clergy in Jerusalem were also in danger and suffering. Number five, the monasteries of Mount Athos suffered great misfortunes. Thousands of Turkish soldiers overran Mount Athos and therefore... The monks couldn't live under it was very difficult for them to live under those conditions, and thousands of monks fled to the newly liberated islands of Greece, those islands that were finally got rid of the Turks. Some others went to Moldavia, which is now part of Romania, and others went to the Russian Empire, which was obviously free and orthodox. Holy Russia. Number six, many were killed in Thessalonica, Cyprus, Smyrna, Rhodes, Crete, and Peloponnesus. So it was quite, a, a, um, it, you know, so obviously the Greeks would have thought, is it worth it? Should we try and gain our independence? Look at all these Greeks being killed. This is also interesting, the Greeks of Pondos. Now, that is, I think, again in Asia Minor, but up the um, north, somewhere up there. The Greeks of Pondos suffered immensely under Ottoman rule. They underwent choking pressures and hardships to the point that their properties and lives, as I said before, in other areas, but also here, were in constant danger. Due to this, the suffering Greeks of Pondo split into three groups. The first group, sadly, who could not endure the sufferings under the Turks, denied their orthodox faith and converted to Islam. In this way, they could remain in their homeland without problems, because now now they were Turks, in a sense. Remember that even the greeks were still turkish citizens when the turks took over their any area the people under them automatically became turkish citizens but because they were christian they did have troubles the second group took on the dangerous role of practicing their christianity secretly so they could remain in their homes so some greek orthodox actually were what we call Crypto-Christiani, Crypto-Christians. Uh, many of these Crypto-Christians had secret chapels full of icons underneath their houses in cellars. They converted them uh, so where they would pray without the Turks knowing that they were doing that. So that's a second group. And that's not denial of, of Christ because we know from the first three centuries of, um, of the Christian church under the pagans that many Christians actually worked for the emperor were soldiers like St. George. The only time, except for some exceptions, the only time that they would have to confess their faith publicly is when they were told to deny their faith. If they weren't told to deny their faith, many of them just continued to lead their lives in secret as Christians, going to, in the nights, going to liturgies in the night, and, and being under the emperor. That's not a denial. The third group, who were the majority, preferred to abandon their property and homeland, Rather than reject their Orthodox faith, they immigrated to the land opposite them, Orthodox Russia, which was on the other side of the Black Sea, because the Black Sea separates. They left Pondos and went over to Russia, where they could practice their faith free. For example, in 1880, a little bit after St. Nectaris' birth, but just to get a little picture, there was a mass immigration from Pondos to southern Russia. There, the Pondian Greeks could live their Orthodox faith without the choking pressures of the Ottoman Empire. So there's a, thousands and thousands of them left in that year, 1880. But we'll stick now more to the 1821 until the Greek independence and that suffered because that's the, that was the atmosphere that St Nectarius's parents lived and that's the atmosphere that he basically lived, which I'll come to that again. Because of the many dangers mentioned above, Anastasios' parents and grandmother were very cautious around the Turks. Now that we've got that history, we can understand why they were cautious. They were in constant anxiety and fear. For example, they would draw the curtains of the windows of their home so that they could not see, so that people could not see them from the outside. The Turks, just knowing that Greek Orthodox Christians were living in the house, sometimes they didn't know, could, from their anger and hate, attack them, especially if they saw them practicing their Orthodox faith. That's doing their cross, venerating icons, praying, etc. Some of them blended in because they wore the same clothes. As we see from here of um, St. Nectarius uh, when he went to Constantinople. This constant danger and fear taught them to pray to Christ, the Theotokos, the angels and the saints for divine protection and help. So I'll repeat that. This constant danger that they lived, this fear, made them pray. It made them pray to Christ, to the Theotokos, to the angels, to the saints, to be protected, to help them, because they didn't know when the Turks were going to hit. One can only imagine the faith and intensity of their prayer. They would have prayed for, just to get work, because as I said, because they were Christians a lot of times, if, they were, if it was known, it was hard to get work, just to get food, Not to be robbed, not to have their property taken away from them, not to deny their orthodoxy. If they were tortured, they would they would pray and say, "Please, Christ, don't let me deny my orthodoxy if I am if I am um, uh, tortured." Thank you. Some of us say, oh, we live in times that we're not being persecuted in such a way, so therefore this story does not relate to us that much because we're not being forced, even though in some countries uh, there are problems. Look what's happening now in Egypt. But apart from that, a lot of times people deny their orthodoxy through maybe even marriage. Fall in love with someone, the other person doesn't want to become orthodox. And they say you come to my church. Let's not get married at all. Let's go to a registry, etc., etc. And according to even to the Greek archdiocese here, they actually, if someone hasn't been married in the church, the children can't even be baptised. So that's a denial of orthodoxy. And there's other ways we can deny orthodoxy in our everyday life. If someone asks us, "Are you a Christian?" and we say no because we're scared to be ridiculed, then we're denying our faith similar to the way that these people did. So they prayed that they wouldn't deny Christ for any reason, whether it was just to have food, whether it was if they had been tortured, etc. There was a lot of um, circumstances that they could become um, um, Muslim. They prayed also for freedom of their homeland, that their homeland be, f- be freed. Greece, etc., and especially one of the, the biggest g- dreams of the Greek, the Greeks, is that Constantinople become free, and that they get back Hagia Sophia, which is the the biggest church there, the Holy Wisdom, which was converted to a mosque in 1453 when it fell, and later on became now I think it's a museum. Anastasius's parents and grandmother were alive during the during the time that Greece was fighting for its independence between 1821 and 1832. This this revolution began twenty-five years before the birth of their son Anastasios. So we've got a picture, it's very close. That's when the that's when the um, revolution began. And when Greece finally became independent, it was thirteen years before the birth of our saint here, um, and, um, Anastasios. It was 13 years before his birth. So obviously it was still the spirits would have been quite, what's the word called, ignited. The Turks still would have had a lot of animosity because they were losing their, the islands, the Greek islands, large parts of Greece. They didn't get the northern part yet but we'll come to that later. The Turks' hatred for and depression of the Greeks increased during, due to the fact, as I said, that the Ottoman Empire was decreasing in size. They were losing areas. They feared that the remaining Greeks would also attempt to gain their independence. That's why they would try to squash them. As mentioned earlier, Thrace was one of the worst hit. And that's where St. Nectarius was born. One could say that the Turks helped many Orthodox Christians, including Anastasia's family, to become holy i said that before because they lived in danger their prayer became real it came from the heart a lot of times when we pray we can pray like pharisees we can admire ourselves look i'm praying god is happy with me like the pharisee in the gospel but when we are praying for something that's dear to us a sick child or marriage or your something could be anything then we tend to pray with our heart. That's called prayer with the heart. That's when it's real. Even though it should be real other times too, but unfortunately people tend to pray when they're more in danger or they need something. And I'm going to give you a little example. I'm going to go off a little bit from the book from Abbot Haranabos the One example where he puts this beautifully. He says, One of the elders, this is now Elder Haranabos, which was an Athenite saint, an Athenite father. He died a few, about 20 years ago more. One of the elders' most pious spiritual children once complained that Johnny, one of his three children, started to slowly pull away from the church, although he was doing really well in the spiritual life until the age of 15 years and actually was never absent from church. The worst was that he now spent the weekends going out all night with his friends and slept in the next day until midday. The elder gave courage to the father, saying, Do you say the prayer that I taught you every night? In other words, do you say the Jesus prayer? Because the elder was very strict on, this, on the Jesus prayer. And he taught all his spiritual children to use the, the prayer rope to pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on my wife, my children, um, my son, etc. Yes, elder... Now, even more so, however, what should I say now with this trial of my child? Meaning, now even more, I pray. What prayer do you do? Every night, with my wife and other children, sometimes Johnny comes, we read the compline with the Akathist. Now, with my wife, we added the paractasis, the the subcultory canon to the theotokos. In the morning, I wake two or three hours before work and say the prayer with the prayer as you have taught me. Two to three hours. Well done. God bless you. Johnny's going to make you a God-bearer. So this elder is saying to these parents, Johnny, because of the problems you're having with him, he's going to make you into saints. because Because of him, you're learning to pray from your heart. Well, didn't I tell you that Johnny's going to put you in order? Do you know how many similar situations I have where, through some trial, they have taught themselves to pray and with patience they have won over others as well so through when people have got problems for someone they pray they become spiritual and then a lot of times they also help those who they're praying for to come out of their problems and danger etc. I remember my mother's example that um, she because we had a shop and they didn't really go to church much at all uh, I never went on Sundays to liturgy. didn't even know that it, it existed. And um, uh, But uh, anyway, so at one stage, uh, my father got sick. And um, as I've said before, that the doctors said that they want to probably amputate his leg because of gangrene because he had sugar. And my mother got very, very upset. So what she did is that she caught the plane. She went to Greece. She went to his village, went to his church there. Uh, to, the ch- to the church that he was born. That's what she felt, that she wanted to go there, which is dedicated to Saint Varvara in, uh, on the island of Ithaca. And then she prayed there with the priest. And then she also went to some other orthodox sh- um, uh, shrines in Greece, maybe I think it was Saint John the Russian in Evia, which is the island she's from. And, uh, and she came back, but well, they didn't, they didn't um, cut off his leg. Toes they did, but not the whole leg as they wanted to. But what I noticed is that she learnt to pray and she became closer to the church. I've met others, for example, who their children might have been had psychological problems, suicidal. Others on drugs. Wives praying for their husbands that are alcoholics or or um uh, gamblers. All these ne- and people come to the church and pray and from that they actually become closer to God. Another example just quickly, a woman who was uh, uh, at her work, don't remember what exactly her job was but she was at times she had to be a coordinator so she had to be in charge of the other people and she hated that because she was not assertive, she couldn't tell people what to do. That was a weakness she had. And she found it difficult to give instructions to people under her. She found it difficult to reprimand someone if they if they did something wrong. She gave them in all that to her was excruciating. And especially when she had to confront people and people were not listening, etc. So she uh, she was a lazy person. Many times I would say, you know, you've got to pray, you've got to pray, and you've got to pray. And Always excuses why she can't pray. Anyway, this time, she learnt to pray. So she began to pray because she couldn't do it. She was going to lose her job. Lose her job, no rent, no money, no honey, as they say. So she prayed for help. One person didn't want to follow instructions, one of the people under her. She insisted and she said, no, you have to do that. Um, Then uh, he went home and talked. uh, Then he went onto onto his Facebook and just plastered her on his Facebook and said that she's all the names, and without mentioning her name, but all the other colleagues at work knew he was referring to her. That's another um, big temptation and very difficult to handle. And she got very upset, and she wanted to report him to the boss, but she decided mm, to leave it. She prayed again, more, more, more. And what happened was that someone else told the boss and, and, and gave a printout of the... Exact Facebook to the boss. The boss saw it. Spoke to the fellow, and the fellow went and, and went to her and asked uh, to apologise, but he he was sincere about it, and everything calmed down. And I said to her that that is what I'm speaking about. We have to use the circumstance of our life to learn to pray. Our spiritual life has to be connected to our everyday life. Everything. At work with our husbands or wives or children or relatives or mothers or fathers. Anything and everything, our spiritual life should be united with our everyday life. When we have our spiritual life, our church life here and our everyday life over here, then it's like schizophrenia. It's a split. And that's called spiritual schizophrenia and that's no good. So you've got people who go to church, even confess, pray, whatever they do there, read books, but then you notice that they're not in any way connected. This is not connected to their everyday life. So that's why God, in his love and wisdom, uses these trials to help people to come close to him. Back to the life now. She, um, the grandmother taught the young Anastasios prayers and they often prayed together. As a five-year-old boy, Anastasius loved to say the 50th psalm with his grandmother. He especially loved the verse, "I shall teach transgressors thy ways, and the ungodly shall turn back unto thee." So the grandmother together, and they would say this psalm, I don't think I don't know if he knew it all, but when she would come to this line, which is towards the end of the psalm, I shall teach transgressors thy ways, and the ungodly shall turn back unto thee. He would cover his mother's mouth, and his grandmother's mouth, and say, No, no, let me say the rest. And he used to say that, and he would enthusiastically uh, recite the rest of the psalm. Now, why did he especially love this? I shall teach transgressors thy ways, and the and the ungodly shall turn back unto thee. And the answer we will see as we go on in the talk. It is not enough to teach little children small prayers and take them to Sunday school. Like, we might be impressed and say, "Okay, the grandmother taught this little prayer. Isn't that nice? It's cute. The child knows how to pray, etc. But today, a lot of parents believe that if I send my child to Sunday school, that will solve the spiritual aspect of the child's life. Others say... I'll teach the children some prayers at home. Now, some of you might say, "Are you saying that that's wrong?" And the answer is no. But that's not enough. They need to be taught the law of God and to be also corrected. <coughs> You're right. Water. It's okay. His parents nurtured the young Anastasios, in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, which is what St. Paul says, Ephesians six four. So what's this instruction and admonition of the Lord? Bring up your children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. Let's look up the definition of admonition. Admonition from the dictionary is a firm, a firm warning or reprimand. To admonish means to correct someone in a strict manner, even scold them if necessary, advise them, them. Now, instruction is you teach the children the law of God. God wants us to love everyone. God wants us to pray. God wants us to repent for our sins. It's all instructions. God wants us to not to lie, not to speak evil of people. That's instruction side. And a lot of children do get that at, 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 uh, here and there at these little Sunday schools. But it's also, says St. Paul says, an admonition. In other words, we also have to correct the children. We have to correct them when they're doing wrong. Like a father spoke to me the other day and he said to me, my child did something, whatever, I don't know what it was, I can't remember what he did, he was rude to him or something. He was, um, yeah, he he was rude to his father, young child. And I said to the father, you've got to go into his room, put him in the room first and sit down and say to him that that is not good that's bad you mustn't speak to your father like that and you're, you know, you're a good boy and you should, just, you should be respectful to your father etc so you've got to correct where needed and that's what's a little bit missing today people don't correct their children So I should say people don't even talk much to their children the television does that and you might say, why are you being rude i'm not I'm, I'm, when I say those things i 'm not doing it to upset people i 'm doing it to awaken people because it's wrong the children the, the, sorry the television has nothing to offer our children, and we can see the mess today of what's happening. Some parents get tempted, we put them in front of the television, we put a Mickey Mouse on and put something like that in there, but all those things. The other day I was somewhere, and I um, might have been at the doctor once, and I was, uh, they had a "bug's Bunny repeat or something, and I was watching it, and I noticed that in every single scene, it was aggressive, the one person hitting the other person, blowing them up, throwing them off cliffs, um, running over them, etc., etc. So you might say, "Oh, that's only children's stuff, that's only children's stuff. Yeah. Go to America. And there's these different groups. There's firstly the Star Trek people who actually still wear the Star Trek suits and make their ears pointed. And they actually believe that they're Star Trek people, that they're Spock and so They're really into that. Then you've got another group who's... What's, what's the other one? Star Wars people. And they're fanatical and they want to get the mem- the, these special things. They have all these things that little children play with, but these are adults. Then you've got the other group, which is the superhero people. Who go around the streets wearing superhero uniforms with masks and capes, and they say that they're fighting crime, and these people are serious. Now, those people obviously did not, they didn't seem to move out of that childhood thing. Obviously, they, their parents must have been very, very busy to make them watch Spider Man or Superman continually, continually, continually until at the end the child got brainwashed. His, so, children's souls are like a sponge. And they soak up their environment. What should they be soaking up? They should be soaking up the parents' good guidance and instruction and admonition. Correction. So Anastasios especially paid attention to the words of his extreme pious mother and grandmother and to whatever else was good and profitable for the soul. He was an obedient son to his parents. Not only his parents but also his relatives and neighbours admired him. From his childhood, he avoided evil pastimes and inappropriate friendships. The young Anastasios disliked children's games. Now, he preferred to pray and memorise psalms and holy sayings. Now, some people read this and they go, I want my child to be like this. So they force their children not to play with games. But that's, this, 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 was, this came from the child itself. You don't force children to, you know, to, like some parents to try to force them to become monastics or priests or nuns and other things, when it's not part of the child. The child has no interest in that. This is exceptional. There are some other saints who as well did not play with games. But there we have other great fathers who played all the children's games and still became saints. It's just sometimes that's how it is. In this case, this particular saint, he did not like to play children's game. He was just loved prayer and psalms and things like that. And we shouldn't force our children to do things or just so that we can feel good that I've got a saintly child. But at the same time, we mustn't let children play with games that are dangerous. Like people buy their children those toys like... Um, um, some makeup kits for their little girls where they make makeup or things like that. So that's teaching the, the girls makeup, teaching the boys aggression, killings. You've got to watch out, you've got to pick toys that are appropriate for the children. Orthodox children are allowed to play with games. Orthodox children can do a lot of things, but you've just got to pick and choose of what's appropriate. If you're leading a spiritual life, you'll feel if something's wrong. At the age of seven, the young Anastasios bought some paper and took pleasure in making a book. One day his mother asked him what he was doing. He replied, "I'm making a book so I can write down the words of God." He continued this practice for many years. So what he would do is what it says here, when he returned from church services, he would recite the sermon from memory to what the priest said. He even made a small platform on which he stood as if he was a preacher on a pulpit in church. Those who heard him were amazed and impressed. So he would listen to what's been said in church, what's been read in the gospel, from the from gospel, and he would come home and try to write these things in his little book. His grandmother, seeing all this, wished with all her heart that her grandson would one day become a clergyman. You can wish it, you can pray about it, but you don't force children. She wished it. But if he wanted to go out and play, then she's not gonna say to him, no, you've gotta come back and read the psalm. But in this case, she didn't have to do that because the child was different. However, she knew that this would be practically impossible because of the situation under the Turks. So she did what she knew best, to trust in God for a solution. She would continually pray that he would be able to be educated so that he could read the gospel and preach. So remember what Christ says. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So many times in our lives, we come to a situation where there's no human solution. It could be a sickness where the doctor said nothing. It could be another situation. It could be um, you're going to lose your house because you couldn't keep up with the mortgage. It could be anything. And that's it. It's finished. There's no human solution And that's where people learn to, they turn to God and ask him for a solution. That's the best type of prayer. Because that means you are having faith that God can solve a problem that humanly is impossible to be solved. After Anastasios had completed the local elementary school in Silavria, like lower primary, I think, there was nowhere in the area for him to continue his school studies. Therefore, he would need to travel abroad to study. But there was a problem. His family was too poor to send him abroad for further education. None of them had money to even for their own food, to, have to actually uh, feed their children. So there was no way they are going to have money to send their son to go and study outside of their air village there. Anastasius had a great thirst for knowledge and a desire to understand the scriptures and become a theologian. That was his desire. That was his dream. He wanted to teach the law of God to as many people as possible. He had zeal to turn the ignorant, those who didn't know about the law law of God, and the sinful from the path of lawlessness, which leads to the loss of their souls. His zeal from very young was to enlighten people, to bring them close to Christ. He wanted to place them on the path of piety, virtue and salvation. We can now understand why he especially loved saying that verse, Psalm 50, I shall teach transgressors thy ways and the ungodly shall turn back unto thee. I will teach those who are transgressing your law and I will bring them and the ungodly, those who are away from you altogether, and, and, and t- shall turn them back to you, to God. That's why he loved that psalm. That's what That was going to be his basis of all his life. Even though he knew his parents' poverty would make this difficult, if not impossible, he still continued to have fervent desire to study and become a preacher of the gospel. When he was about 14, Anastasia's parents decided to send him to Constantinople to continue his education, because it's a city obviously, and at the same time to work in a shop because uh, get some money. In this way he would be able to live, fund his education and help his family financially. So they said, you go to Constantinople, get a job at this shop that we've got a letter for you and that way you can feed yourself and board whatever you need to have there, rent, send us money and pay for your education. Before his departure, his grandmother gave him a cross to wear around his neck containing a piece of the precious and life-giving cross of Christ. That's a relic. So we know that Christ was crucified on the cross. The cross, um, bits of that cross have been taken. to Russia and all, all around the world. Some people even have little pieces of it and they put it like in their cross. For example, so you've got a cross like this. And it opens up, screws opens up, they put it in, close it so they have that in there. So she, for some reason, the grandmother had one of those crosses with a little piece of the true cross. And um, she told him, if you're at sea and in danger of drowning, tie this cross to something and lower it into the water. And sea and the sea shall calm immediately the faith that she had, and the faith that he had too. But where'd they get this faith? The, Tur- the Turks taught them. Before leaving home, he was given a letter of recommendation for a job in Constantinople. The letter was addressed to Mr. Theodore Celleple Celepsi- Theodore. A tobacco reader, right? A tobacco trader, say so this man owned a shop, some relative where the young Anastasius lived knew him and they gave him a letter saying you go to this man, he'll give you a job in his tobacco shop. The young Anastasius left his home and parents carrying only a little bag, he arrived at the port where the ship was preparing to leave for Constantinople. The problem was that he did not have any money for the ticket. Someone asked me the other day when I told them about this, I said, Well, why did he go in the first place? Why did his parents send him to the port if he had no money? Because of their faith that somehow God will work it out. The captain of the ship noticed him on the pier, holding a small sack, and could tell that he wanted to travel and that he did not have any fare, they did not have the fare. He asked him in a teasing manner, where to, brave boy? And Anastasius replied, to, um, to Constantinople, sir. And then the captain said, well, freeloaders are not welcome in Constantinople. Freeloaders, I think, is more of an American term. We say bludgers. So bludgers are not, you know, you can't, if you've got no money, you can't travel. We don't want people like that in Constantinople. This boat was going there. Anastasius answered nothing. He just stood there in a corner of the pier, saddened and embarrassed, the captain then gave the order to put to sea, put out to sea. The captain turned on the engines, however, the engines would not start. It was going like making noises, but the engines just wouldn't turn over. He became very angry and frustrated. In one book, it actually says that he just became so crazy that he was that he was smashing the the um, the wheel of the boat. He became like you know, Greeks very hot-headed, and um, I should know. Um, you have to see me when I'm angry. So. He was. He became very angry and frustrated. In his distress, he glanced up and saw the sad young boy standing alone on the pier. Anastasius used the opportunity to plead with the captain and cried out, "Take me, Captain, sir!" The captain then motioned to him to get a, to get on board. Why would the captain do that? Why would the captain let a passenger come along who never had the money? And especially while he was in this in this fit of anger that the boat wouldn't start because God allowed it God enlightened that's why we read so many times that people do something and you say I can't understand why they even did that in, even, in our, in, even in our lives the, the moment Anastasia set foot on the ship the engine started and the ship began to move so obviously uh, this was divine providence but we don't hear any big deal about it. The boat didn't become a holy shrine like they do in the other churches. And uh, this big emphasis, you know, they say, oh, the mother of God appeared there, and, they make a sh- and this, and that. But in the Orthodox Church, we are more simple. And in the Orthodox Church, there are miracles continually. And some of them, they are made into places of veneration, but but this here wasn't even... There was not even any impact on 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 the captain to say the boat started when he came on. He was blinded. He was just a tool in God's providence. God enlightened him. Let the boy come aboard. Anastasius was so happy that he was finally on the ship heading for Constantinople. Suddenly he saw the ticket collectors asking the passengers to show their tickets... And Assasus again found himself in a difficult situation because the only one who knew his secret, the captain, was nowhere to be found. The captain had gone to his room. I will tell the truth, he thought to himself. When they asked him, he said, I am poor, I don't have any money, I'm going to Constantinople to work and send money to my parents and to go to school and study. It was the captain who told me to get on board. Obviously the um, ticket collector wasn't really impressed by this time. Many people had gathered around him to see what was going on. The young Anastasio suddenly began to cry. All these people, commotion. He was scared they were going to make, you know, throw him off the boat, not into the water, but at the next port, or, or make, him, make him come back with them. And he wanted to go to Constantinople to study. Some of the passengers who heard the young Anastasio's story and witnessed his tears were very moved. One of the passengers, who appeared to be well off, asked him to tell them more of his story, Anastasios then continued, he said to this man, I want to study. My grandmother's wish is for me to become a priest and preacher of the Holy Gospel. He was particularly impressed with the young boy's courage and enthusiasm and feeling sorry for him, decided to pay his fare. That's another aspect of, that's another thing of divine providence. People have said to me that when they've gone on pilgrimages, to Russia to Greece or wherever they're going for their soul they're going to visit monasteries speak to different spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers and venerate different places and especially Mount Athos they say that you can see God's providence in all the steps that God is there because when a person's doing something for his soul God becomes even more Obvious to that person now some of you might say how come I don't see God in my life well a lot of times we're too busy and we're not really struggling for our salvation we're not really doing the you know trying to come closer to God we're too busy trying to make money and other things not that we're not allowed to make money but sometimes when it becomes preoccupied Others to preoccupy with their their looks, others with their bodies, others with their houses, their cars, etc. Well, how can God show His providence to those to, to those people? So, seek the kingdom of heaven first, and all the rest will be given to us. That's what Christ says. Struggle for the kingdom of heaven, struggle for your salvation, and all the rest will come. Doesn't mean just struggle for your salvation. Struggle and do the other things. But make sure you know how to prioritise. First is salvation of the soul, then comes the rest. Today it's the other way around. Today it's a big house, a nice car, big a not good job, education, this, this, it's all up the top and down the bottom a little, little area left for God. So that's why we don't feel that divine providence. Those of you who do struggle more and you will find that um, you will see God's providence in your lives. When Anastasios arrived in Constantinople, he was struck by the beauty of the ancient Christian churches, especially the famous and great Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. Hagia Sophia in Greek means Holy Wisdom. Beautiful church. I've been there. Uh, uh, It is sad to see that it's, you know... That it's the last liturgy performed, celebrated in there was 1453. The Greeks held for many, many, many months they held off. And there was a lot of miracles involved during those attacks. Things appeared and the Turks would become scared. Many times the Turks were ready to leave. They were losing a lot of men. And Just on the last time, towards the end, they were ready to leave because they were scared. They they saw these supernatural things happening around the city, happening to them, and they said, We have to leave. And the Greeks were uh, uh, hoping that the West would come and help them. Even though they were divided, the churches, they were hoping that the Pope would come and help them to fight the Turks. And there were some Roman Catholics there at the city, some, some of their army, <coughs> a few, few of them. And uh, they actually did a union. They said that they did it, but the majority of the Orthodox didn't accept it. They said, we will not accept the union because the Pope said, if you unite with us, and have me as the head, then I will help you. And they did this false union which hardly no one accepted. But on, the, but on one evening, when they thought that they were going to lose, they lost their hope in God, even though they saw these miracles that God was doing. And they all went to Hagia Sophia. And for the first time, the Greeks and the Roman Catholics celebrated together and commune together, which is forbidden by the church canons. As soon as that happened, no more supernatural events. The Turks were ready to leave. As soon as that happened, the Turks decided to give one more go to attack, and they took the city. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He had heard a lot about this church from his parents and grandmother, They would have explained to him how the Greeks, because of their sins and heresy, lost Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. Not only Anastasius, but all the Greeks had the hope that one day Constantinople would become Greek again and the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia would become an Orthodox church once again. The man he was to see for his employment had left Constantinople and therefore his letter of recommendation given by his relative back home became useless so he had no job. This left the young Anastasius unemployed, homeless and completely alone in the great city of Constantinople. Because of this he had to look for a job. He asked many people but because they did not know him no one would give him work. He eventually found a job working for a cruel mannered man in his tobacco shop. This man would often hit the young Anastasius. was a really horrible person and any time that he got upset or whatever he would just hit hit him. His job involved packing the tobacco into square boxes and cases. He would then deliver them using a push cart throughout the large city of Constantinople. He was grateful to God that he at least found this job, even though his the conditions were very bad. He had to work continually to the night, and this man was a beast. He was required to work from morning till night and he and his pay consisted mostly of his room and board. That's it, it was hardly nothing left over. He had no money left over to pay for his schooling or to send to his parents so therefore his wish was not being fulfilled he was not going to school all he was doing was packing tobacco he did not lose hope and he put all his trust in God he remembered his father's words that every beginning is hard it's a Greek expression maybe Russians got a tune service every beginning is hard whatever you start off it's going to be difficult in other words, don't give up, just whatever you start in your life. To make things worse, like you go to university in the beginning, it's hard for some people, or, or whatever you're going to do in life. Marriage in the beginning is very difficult when you first get married. People think it's going to be like um, some beautiful experience and love and, you know, with hearts everywhere in the room and everything like that. That's not what marriage is about. Marriage is an arena. It's a warfare that's when you, as soon as you get married then all the faults come out. She has her faults, he has his faults. Got to deal with them. It's a, it's a matter of them at times. To make things worse, he found it difficult to, for, um, to find time to pray and attend church. Now some of the zealots might say, oh my, look at that, he's not going to church. And on top of that, he's even, he's even participating in selling tobacco, which is cancerous. But of course, in those days, they never knew that, that, uh, that uh, t- um, tobacco was cancerous. But the thing is, he couldn't go to church. Sometimes that happens. Some people's jobs are like that. We've, we do everything in our power not to work on Sundays and feast days. And when we, we haven't got that power, we ask God to for, for forgiveness because we can't get to do what we're supposed to do. While moving through the city to make his deliveries, however, he looked for opportunities to find an Orthodox church because the churches were still allowed. So everywhere he was going, pushing his cart with the tobacco boxes to deliver, and wherever he could see a church, he would go in and do a little minute prayer, whatever he could do. He would enter, venerate the icons, and pray. During these times, he would pray to God that he would help him with his many problems, such as that he had no money to study or to send to his parents, the abuse that he was suffering from his boss and that he had no time to attend the divine services to read or to pray regularly that's what it' see his everyday life becomes his spiritual life not separate two different things together united and I like this part here because it says here that wherever he found the opportunity I remember someone said to me once when they were taking care of a relative that was very, very sick, they said that it was just... This person was very, um, what do you call that, um, high dependency, that very much needed help continually. And this person said, I couldn't even do prayers. It was very difficult. I had Nurses come in and doctors come in and this and that. It was very, very, very difficult. However, even if I got five minutes, if, if the patient was five minutes, was a bit quiet or whatever, I would run and do prayer. And I've got other people that say, oh, I can't pray because the baby cries and the baby's thin and the baby that and the baby that. And I, I say, no, I don't believe that. Everyone can find a minute or two. So when we want, we find the ways. When we don't, we can have all the excuses and we can believe them. But he did what he did. He said, oh, he would go and find that, even though he's working seven days a week. By the way, St. Nicodemus says that enduring sicknesses and afflictions like he was enduring afflictions is far greater than self-willed askesis, than self-willed prayer. You know, like sometimes, as I said, we pray like Pharisees, we fast like Pharisees, and we do this out of self-will. However, what is... More valuable than that is when we endure with patience, afflictions, sufferings and sicknesses, etc. St. Nicodemus says this, is, this bears much spiritual fruit. But yet we think, no, I don't want to be sick because then I can't go to church. I don't want to be sick because I don't want to do this because I can't, I can't um, pray. A lot of people are so sick; they might suffer from migraines or other sicknesses. They might be medicated so badly they can't even think, and yet, um, they—all God wants from them is just patience, just patience. Uh, which I haven't got now. Please sh- sh- shut the door. Mm. See how we lack patience a bit too much, isn't it? If we can get well, we get well. If we can get out of afflictions, we get out of, out of afflictions. But if, if that's what God has given us, then we mustn't complain and think that we're not bearing fruit or because we can't go to church or we can't do many things. He, because, he, because Anastasios did bear fruit. He, didn't, he couldn't go to church, he couldn't pray, he couldn't read much because this person that he worked through worked him like an animal seven days a week. But yet, a minute here, two minutes here, three minutes here is worth more than someone who's got the time and prays like a Pharisee. Even though he was without parental supervision, he avoided inappropriate behaviour and bad company. Behaviour which is characteristic of many boys of his age. So obviously he was 14, 15, 16. This is a very difficult time for boys and for girls. But We're talking about him now. And... um, people are inclined to do sinful things, sexual sins, drinking, etc., etc. He avoided bad company so as not to be tempted. That's what we need to teach the children. Teach the children the virtue of virginity. Teach the children, the, our children the virtue of purity through the lives of saints. But what do they do? They look at these pop stars and sports people and actors and actresses, and look at their debauched, horrible lives, some of them, really, really horrible lives, and the kids are sitting there with their tongues hanging out, drooling over these people wanting to be like them, then you wonder what happened, because the children should be exposed to good models. The first model that the children should try to imitate should be the parents, not the priest. Some people say, "Oh, I'll take it to the priest." The first years of the life, the priest is only gives the mysteries. The Priest is not involved with the spiritual upbringing. I won't touch children when they're very young, seven, even up to six, seven, six, maybe seven. I find it difficult. I can I, I don't think. I don't feel right to speak to them. It's the parents' job. They know the child's vocabulary. They know the child's level. They know the child's understanding. It's the parents who are the spiritual fathers and mothers. Of the children in the beginning. The priest gives baptism, holy communion, praise, etc. It's the parents is the main uh, um, part of the children's life. The role models. And and then when they get a bit older, as I said, seven, eight, when they begin to understand, we start also uh, exposing them to the lives of the saints, etc. So that they can imitate them and not the... Um, decrepence that they are imitating now. In general, he avoided anything that might incline him towards sin. His knowledge of sin came from his spiritual upbringing. In other words, he was taught the holy commandments from his father and mother and grandmother. He was taught the holy commandments. And this is the basis of spiritual life, the commandments of Christ. Of course, there are other commandments today. The first commandment, thou shalt get a good job. The second commandment, thou shalt look beautiful and handsome, whatever. And the third one is thou shalt be rich. And the other one, thou shalt be great and popular and you've got to be on the Facebook and you've got to be um, on those Americans' idols or Australian idols or X-Factors or this new thing, The Voice and The Creeps and this and that. It's just... Everything is there for people to become popular. So you see poor young people and even adults trying to do these most daredevil type of acts and things so that they can get themselves on the YouTube so they can get the most hits that people watch them. This is, the, this is what you want, to have a thirst for attention, a thirst to be recognised. Now some of you might say, oh, does that mean you're saying that Facebook is bad? I've said this before. Uh, Facebook in and of itself is not the bad thing. The bad thing is how it's used. And how is it used? Um, From what I've been told, that uh, people in their Facebook put everything that that they're doing so that everyone can see it. I'm going to the beach. Last night I went out with such and such a person. Uh, Today I went to McDonald's. Um, had my hair done others I went weightlifting. and other, I don't know to me I still can't understand why would anyone care about what you're doing I just don't I, don't I don't really understand it and yet these people have them there and they think that people are all there that the world is all looking to see what they're doing that's what's called vainglory and They've actually had some specials on that on TV lately where they actually say, um, well, there's current affairs, but that the, the, the generations, these last generations are coming up where they have this thirst for attention and recognition. Uh, anyway, something's not right there, is it? So some of you might not agree. I tell you who won't agree. If someone's not leading a spiritual life, and especially struggling against pride and vainglory, they won't understand what I'm speaking about. I could be speaking Cantonese, it's the same thing, right? If, however, someone's struggling with their pride and their vainglory, then they can see is when I'm showing off, when I want people to notice me, then that's what a lot of the Facebook's about. So therefore, it's vainglory. And that's what the saints used to hate. Did a whole talk on that, four hours, number thirty eight pride and vainglory um, so if people lead a spiritual life they will know that does not compute and if they're not leading a spiritual life then you would say what's that priest speak, talk, talking about so that's the, that's the difference so wherefore someone says to me should I have Facebook I say to them are you leading a spiritual life well What's there to talk about? You would love that type of thing. As mentioned earlier, from seven years old, he kept a thick notebook in which he would write down whatever beneficial sayings and teachings that he came across during the reading of the Bible and the writings of the Holy Fathers. He did this because he wished to produce a book one day. So great was his desire to help his neighbour. But to produce such a book was difficult due to the fact that he didn't have any money. So he kept this book, he still kept it. Wherever he would hear something good or read something, whenever he could or maybe whatever, he, he, he had time, he would write it into his little book there and he wanted to make a whole book of these beautiful sayings, which I'm going to read some in a minute. All these difficulties caused him to suffer considerably and as a result he broke down and cried. In particular, he was upset that he could not spread the word of God to the ignorant and sinful because of the lack of time and money because that was his whole being. His whole being was he wanted to become a preacher of the gospel and he wasn't wasn't able to do that and at least to produce his book, he wasn't even able to do that. And some people say, oh, how could a saint cry? How can a saint be upset? Suddenly, a thought came to him, of how he could spread the word of God to those who were ignorant of their orthodox faith. His idea was to copy the beneficial sayings and teachings from his little notebook onto the shop's packages and wrappings in the hope that the shop's customers might read them out of curiosity and be instructed in what is wise and good. That is, that they might receive spiritual benefit. So great was his desire to bring benefit to his neighbour. So he got his book he would in the nighttime, very late when there was no one in the shop. It says that he the only time he could find to do this was at night. His boss and co-workers had no idea of what he was doing. Every night he would open his night notebook and choose various beneficial sayings and teachings that he believed would bring benefit to the customers. Some examples are, one quote that he used to put on his little packets, was humble yourselves in front of the Lord and he will exalt you. Number one, if anyone wants to be first, let him be the least of all and everybody's servant. Christ's word. Abraham said, I am but earth and ashes. Number four, the Lord, having humbled himself and became, become man, showed us that humility is the best way to be exalted in God's eyes, obviously. When you are successful, do not consider yourself great. What did you notice about all those expression about those um, saints? Uh, uh, Did anyone notice a common theme? Humility. Humility. Every single one refers to humility. Emphasis on humility. Now, when you read the Optina elders and all the great saints, their main message is humility. Christ's message was humility. When you fast. Don't fast so everyone can see you, don't be like a hypocrite. When you pray, don't pray so everyone can see you, but pray in your room, etc., etc. When you uh, give arms, don't give your arms in front of everyone so that you can be noticed. All that's to do with humility. That's how you know the sign of a person uh, of, a, of, a, of a person who is uh, leading some type of spiritual life, the emphasis on humility humility is the opposite to pride now some of you might be confused and say well if you're not proud of yourself then that and that means that you must hate yourself there's all these confusion con- there's all this confusion because people don't understand spiritual life we have great saints that were kings and queens that had all the power and we have bishops and and other great um, rulers who had the who were great in their position, but they had humility because they knew that whatever they've got is from God. While today, a lot of us believe that whatever we've got is from ourselves. But let us look. We'll see more about humility. We've got to read. It's hard for me now to explain what is humility. People have to live live the orthodox life and then you begin to understand the importance of it. So, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself right through is is, thing. Thus customers would leave with a handwritten note that was spiritually profitable together with their purchases. Now I come to a section which is called aptitude. Saint Nectarius. from his being that's what he wanted to do. You get parents which say oh, I want my son or my daughter to be a doctor for example or something else let's just say a doctor or a teacher the person has no inclination at all to that at all some people still go and do it, they actually go and study it They they go and they say, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to be a great doctor. Meanwhile, during their years as they're growing up, didn't ever do anything medical. I mean, you can even go and become a St John John Ambulance volunteer and go and help people. Um, That's medical. First aid certificate. And um, they, they weren't interested in that. They're just interested in becoming whatever. They're going to become a specialist or whatever. And if you see them, those people... Oh, it's like you're going to have a cardiac arrest when you have to deal with those people. Very cold people. How are you today? And as you're answering, they're looking away. They're not interested. They can't even look you in the eyes. No empathy. No, no, there's no inclination towards it. What's this thing? Aptitude. aptitude. A natural ability to do something. For example, children with an aptitude for painting and drawing a natural tendency. Now this saint, he showed that he wanted to preach from young and he showed it, and as you'll see, all the opportunities that he took even before he became a clergyman. So we don't force children into things. They haven't got an aptitude, why would you do it? You've got to look for the child's abilities, look for their strengths, look what, what they like, and then encourage them. But you don't force. So that's why you say, like, for example, someone might be going, oh, I'm going to become a nurse. So they study three, four years, they become a nurse. But then you ask them, in all your years, did you ever take care of a sick person? Doesn't no, didn't like to. But you're a nurse now. <laughs> yeah. You go, well, I hope. Please tell me about hospital you're at, so I won't come. <laughs> Right. so we go to the next thing the shop's sales so because of this business of the, of, of the right and all these sayings for a miracle the shop's sales miraculously doubled from the time the young Anastasius began to write these sayings unfortunately the boss's manner did not improve he continued to treat Anastasius very badly still hit him, still treated him badly he um it didn't make any difference to him. But of course, he never probably knew that it was because of him. He didn't know that it was because of the young boy that he had there. But nevertheless, one would think he'd be happier, but he wasn't. As time went by, the young Anastasius's clothing and shoes were becoming worn and falling apart. Because of this, he suffered a great deal because he would walk around, his shoes had holes in them, his socks, etc. He had no parents there living relatives or friends to ask for help, and those, and he was too scared to ask his mean boss for help. He was at a loss of what to do. When the situation became bad, especially during winter, he was forced to ask his boss for help. One night he approached his boss with fear and trembling and explained the situation. He was hoping that the boss would pay him a little bit more so he can buy some clothes. The hard-hearted man was not moved at all and told Anastasios to write home to his parents and ask them to send the clothes and shoes. He explained to the boss... That the parents were very poor, but he, he, he even this, he did not move him. He then abruptly told him to leave him alone and threatened to fire him if he keeps on going on about it. He left the room with much pain and sorrow. What could he do? He was in desperate need of clothing and shoes, because winter was approaching. as we said. The young Anastasios would often see his employer write and receive letters. This gave him an idea to write a letter to express his complaints about how he worked hard, how he wasn't paid enough, how he wanted to eat and clothe himself but did not have enough money. However, he had no one to write to. He could not write to his mother because mail was not delivered to small villages. So he got that idea because he saw his boss writing letters and receiving letters and he said, oh, I want to write a letter. But then at the end he had no one to write to. All this hurt Anastasios very much and he, felt he fell into despair. After some time of crying, he fell asleep and dreamt that he saw Christ who asked him why he was crying However, he was unable to get close to Christ and speak to him. He suddenly awoke somewhat terrorised. He decided to write a letter to Christ with faith and hope he wrote. To my dearest Jesus, the reason that I'm weeping continually is that my clothes and shoes are worn out and fallen apart and I suffer because it's now winter. Last night I asked my boss for help and he turned me away. He said that I should ask my family for help I cannot ask my family because they are poor and I've not been able to send them even one coin. How shall I I do my deliveries in this bitter cold? I have mended my clothes and socks so many times that they keep tearing. Please forgive me for troubling you with my problem, but it is you whom I worship and whom I have my hope. Your faithful servant Anastasio. See, you might say that's a bit silly, but this is what's called childlike simplicity you know, today, because children see the most vile things on TV, every sexual and all that, children, you know, a lot of people don't really know how children are like who are pure and simple and have never been experienced, have never seen these things. People don't know. They don't, they don't see it much anymore because children are watching horrific scenes on the, on the television, just just the Harry Potter stuff, for example of monsters and demons and this and that and hate and revenge and death etc. Little children are watching that. And they lose their innocence. Children today are very sly, very sexually aware, and in general and in ge- and in general very corrupt. And that's because of this exposure to all these things. Children are not meant to see these things at such a young age. I mean, even adults shouldn't see a lot of that stuff. He placed the letter in an envelope and addressed it. To our Lord Jesus Christ in the heavens. He might say he's 14, 15. Yes, simple. That's how how children are when they're very simple. He then left early to post it on the way. And met the owner of the shop across the road... Mr. Themistocles, who was also on his way to post letters, the man knew Anastasios and his qualities of innocence, honesty and hard work, and asked him, Anastasius, where are you going so early? And he said to the post office, no need, I shall post it for you since I'm on my way there. I see you are shivering in this cold, so you, also, you had better quickly return to the shop before you get sick. Anastasius was very moved and thanked him for his kindness, so he couldn't even walk to the post office because he just the clothes he hadn't, they were deteriorating. The shop owner noticed the name and address on the envelope, the guy who took the envelope. He was surprised and out of curiosity decided to open the envelope and read the letter because he saw on it which said, to Christ in the heavens. And this, this fellow said, what's, what's going on here? He was so touched at the young boy's words that he went and so he read the letter and he was touched by the words and prepared a parcel with warm clothing, shoes and money. He sent the parcel through the mail to Anastasios Kefalas at the tobacco shop, addressed it there. The parcel was delivered and Anastasios received it with great joy and thankfulness. He opened the parcel and found a note which read, Christ to Anastasios. When his boss saw him wearing his new clothes and shoes, he began to suspect that he stole money from the shop. He started hitting and kicking him all over his body while accusing him of being a thief. Anastasius made many attempts to explain from where he received these new clothes and shoes, but his boss would not listen and continued to beat him without mercy. He began to bleed and was in danger of even being killed. Anastasius cried out, I'm not a thief, please listen to me. My dearest Christ sent this to me. The shop owner... So um, this is where we have to understand that people say... "If Someone said to me the other day they rang up and they said that in in their mind when they became orthodox, that they thought that when you become orthodox then everything goes well because you're with God and you don't have problems. And I said, this is not correct. Because what did Christ say? He who, St. Paul, or, he who lives, who wants to live in Christ will be persecuted, will be abused, will be will suffer. And... Yes, this young boy was saintly, obviously you can see from the purity, but yet God allowed these things to happen as he did to all the saints. So this attitude that nothing will happen when we're spiritual and we're good and we're going to go really well and everyone's going to be blessed. And then when something happens, people say, oh, I don't, I don't believe anymore or I can't believe God will allow this. and They start swearing and blaspheming. These things are not r- right The shop owner across the street, the one who took the letter, heard all the commotion, ran to help poor Anastasios. The boss immediately stopped beating him because he was scared that the Turkish police would get involved. And you all know what Turkish jails are like. Um, They're very horrible. So this guy got scared. I don't even know if this guy was Turkish himself or Greek, what this owner was. Mr Thermos then took the boss to the side and explained the whole matter to him. After this incident, Nastaris was offered work at the shop of Mr. Thermosticlis, he decided come and work for me. He happily accepted this new job, and who wouldn't want to get away from the get away from the beast. His new boss treated him very kindly, and in general, his work conditions were much better. He was now able to find more time for study. So he didn't have to work those long hours like he did for the other person and he was now able to read the Bible, read some spiritual books, and to to pray. Because of this, he he stayed at his new job for a considerable number of years. But after those years, Anastasios left the shop of, of Mr Themistocles because he found employment as a church youth instructor at a school teaching the lower grades. He hadn't even finished primary school. But in those days, the higher grades taught the lower grades. So he was given a job to teach the youth of the lower grades. His great desire for study also began to be fulfilled. At the same time as teaching the lower grades, he attended the middle grades. In this way, he he, way he received from God an answer to his prayer to receive further education. He was finally, his dream was coming true to, to finish school or to get more more years up while he was teaching and studying he attended church services on a regular basis so now in this new position he was even able he was able even more now to uh, uh, go to church in addition to this he studied the writings of the church fathers with great zeal while studying these writings he would choose verses to write in his notebook of beneficial sayings remember that notebook he still he still kept that going the combination, this is important, look let's let's look at his life. The combination of work, study, prayer, attending church services, and his ascetical struggles, meaning his fasting and his keeping the commands, well, that's what asceticism means to keep the commandments of Christ, brought him closer to God. See the combination there? Work, because some people say I want to come they, they say I'm gonna come to the church and i just want to do prayer and do spiritual things all day and I, and we know what we what we say about them no you're supposed to in the world you work you study obviously the words of god you pray you go to church you do the commandments and you do other and you do obviously good works which is the commandments As St. Seraphim of Sarov says, the aim of the Christian life is the acquisition of the Holy Spirit, which is achieved by doing good works for Christ. By doing good works for Christ. And what are the good works? We learnt that in Talk 45. Are we leading a balanced spiritual life? Someone yesterday or the day before asked me, what should I be doing in my spiritual life? And I said, have you heard Talk 45? Are we leading a balanced spiritual life? What do we learn from St. Nectarius? He was leading a balanced spiritual life, not just praying or not just fasting or not just going to church, not just going to work. Christians are meant to lead a balance, like vitamins, vitamin A, B, C, D, E, etc. We're supposed to have a balanced diet. As sometimes certain vitamins are lacking, we can increase them. Spiritual life is the same. These are called spiritual vitamins. We do everything. The commandments, holy communion, confession, prayer, uh, study the word of God, the Bible, listen to sermons, do good works, works of mercy like we said last month. That's called a balanced spiritual life and that's what Anastasius was doing and because he was doing all that, This brought him closer to God. He began to experience the grace of God more deeply, even more than before when he was younger, because the grace especially comes from the church services. Grace comes from prayer. Grace comes from when we do good to our neighbour. Grace comes from when we read the word of God Grace comes, like tonight, when we listen to a sermon. Grace, we have to do a lot of things, not just one thing. Therefore, it was no surprise that because of all this, he began to yearn for a deeper spiritual life, that is, the monastic life. However, he was torn between the monastic life, going to a monastery, and serve and, and serving the church. When he says monastic, he means to go and become like an ascetic, a at Athos, to be cut off from the world. He had that desire but he also had the desire to serve the church. and so When you're in the mountains you can't serve the church. Both of course are accepted by God but his inclination was he wanted to uh, serve the people in the world. For this reason he very much wanted to finish his education and learn as much as he could Anastasius, while living in Constantinople, had a strong desire to visit Jerusalem. All, obviously, Orthodox Christian spiritual people want to one day go and worship at the, um, at the Holy Land. And he had that desire. During the voyage, the ship on which he was travelling was in danger of sinking during a terrible storm. So he was on, his, on this boat going to Jerusalem from Constantinople. Very big storm. The captain seen the obvious danger gave orders that the lifeboats and life jackets be prepared because the captain knew the boat was going to sink. Anastasios, hearing the captain's orders and looking at the state of the sea, knew that there was no way out. My God, he cried, why do you permit this? I do not want to die, I want to be a preacher, he prayed. He then remembered the advice of his grandmother, which was, who knows... If you're at sea and in danger of drowning, tie the cross to something and lower it into the water and the sea shall calm immediately. So he took from his neck the cross his grandmother had given him, which contained a piece of the venerable cross, and tied it to his belt. He went to the side of the ship and dipped the cross into the water three times, saying, Be still, be silent. Then a miracle occurred. Within one or two minutes the storm died and a great calm followed to the amazement of all. Having given thanks to God, they continued the voyage with great joy, apart from the young Anastasios who was very upset that his cross had fallen into the sea. As the voyage continued, strange knocking sounds could be heard from underneath the ship. The captain sent sailors to investigate when they came to port and they found nothing. Oh, must have been on the way. When the ship finally reached harbour, the knocking sounds were, ver- were heard again. When they examined underneath the ship, the sailors found the young Anastasius's cross at the place where the knocking had been heard. One of the sa- sailors reported the finding to the captain, who began shouting and waving at the departing Anastasius, because he, was, he had already started to leave. Kefalas, kefalas, come back. The sailors also called him back. Come, my friend, to take your cross back. The boy was overjoyed to have his cross returned to him, and from that time on he always wore it. One thing I noticed in this... Life, do you notice, like when a Catholic miracle occurs, like all these when people start wailing and become like crazy, and um, usually, as I said, like we said in the earlier talks in the in the thirties, the talks there 30, 33, 34 I can't remember, where we talk about a lot of miracles where the sun's moving around and there's things appearing and all these type of things, and people go, and people go into hysteria. We notice here that there's no, no one. They said they, people noticed it. They saw the miracle, a calmness. And when they opened the relics of Saint John of Shanghai and San Francisco before his canonization in 94, um, I read an account of it. And it said they went there and they prayed. There's quite a few priests and bishops there. And they opened up because they didn't know how they're going to find him. They opened up the tomb where he was, he was in the, he, they had him in the lower chapel of the San Francisco um, church there, down the bottom, which I, which I went, uh, back in the 80s, and people used to do panahitas because he wasn't canonised a saint, when it's a saint you can do a malebon, when it's not a saint you must do a memorial prayer for the dead, people used to go there and ask the priest to do memorial prayers, all day people would come uh, asking his prayers, and then when they closed the door, opened up the tomb, and they found him incorrupt. And it just says that in the room was this calmness, joy, no hysteria, no these things. That's how you know an orthodox miracle versus something demonic. Demonic ones make people agitated, excited, and crazy. Orthodox like the ones that Benny Hill does on TV, Benny Hinn. Um, and all these other Protestants that do all these miracles, and they can you know they praise the Lord, and they're jumping up, throwing their, throwing their crutches, hitting people in the head, and running around, etc., up and down, and it's like hysteria. Now I did uh, quite a few talks on, on these demonic things: talks 32, 33, 34, and 35. 32. O oh, child, you have massacred the demon. Talks about patristic point of view on these demonic things. Talk 33, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The devil can appear as an angel or a saint. 34, what do we need to know to understand the deception of our times? And talk 35, seek in signs and miracles, beneficial or harmful. And you, that's that. Um, calmness. In 1866, Anastasios left Constantinople at the age of 20, after having spent six years there. He travelled to the island of Chios where his family had recently moved. He had with him a letter of recommendation from the director of the school in Constantinople to give to the metropolitan there, Gregory of Chios. The metropolitan appointed him a primary or an elementary school, because say elementary because Americans, we say primary school here, they say elementary. So, um, uh, a primary or elementary school teacher in one of the villages, even though he hadn't even finished school, um, he was appointed as a teacher to the yoa, to the younger grades. Like in Constantinople, he would often attend church services. All who knew him respected him for his wisdom and example, entirely serving the church and community. He instructed not only students but also influenced and persuaded the villagers to pursue piety and virtue. He didn't just teach the children. He used to teach the adults as well to lead spiritual lives. They were greatly inspired by his own example because he led a spiritual life. As I said before, example is more important than just words. After finishing his duties at school... He returned to his room where he would immerse himself, where he immersed himself in study and prayer. Like the saints of all, like it says, they just knew the school, like St. Basil, I think, St. Gregory, when they were studying in Athens. This is all they knew school, church, home. School, church, home. That was it. University, which they went, it's church, and thing. Today, of course, was church, and then there's the bars. And then there's the dancers, and then there's this and that and that on the beach, et cetera, et cetera. All these other things. Some people might believe it's a balanced spiritual life. But um, so he, uh, that's, now you might also say that, oh, well, how can we do that? How can we just go to work and pray and study and then don't do anything else? Orthodox, he was different, but Orthodox Christians can do a lot of things, but you've got to find what is appropriate. Children can go a lot of places. People can go a lot of places. But you've got to find what's appropriate instead of going to what's corrupt. Apart from this, he also performed many works of mercy, both physical and spiritual, which was what I said last talk. Works of mercy are divided up into two, physical and spiritual. He helped the sick, And the dying, while he was there, he consoled those who had lost a dear one, especially if someone lost a child because they had a lot of diseases in those times. Spiritual life without works is worthless. So people lead a spiritual life, as I said, and I fast a lot and pray and commune. Some even confess and read the Bible and do all these spiritual things but they don't have any feeling for anyone else. It's like their own personal spiritual life. And this is where it's wrong. That's why in that talk, which I, which I did around three and a half hours, it's saying, no, you must perform works of mercy. And that's what he did. Remember that um, he... Um, um, example, even when he was in Constantinople, by writing those sayings on the tobacco packets... He was doing works of mercy. He was giving spiritual benefit. He felt sorry for the people. He wanted them to learn something, and he did it. See, God, we, when we die and we're judged, we cannot be saved if we were not merciful. That's why Christ said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I wanted to change that title, but someone said better not play with Christ's words. But I was going to write it... Um, Blessed are the merciful, for only they shall obtain mercy. But I left it as as Christ's words, and then I explained it at the back. If we do not show mercy, if we see people suffering, if we see people in need, if we don't care and are not moved by them, we will not find mercy on the last day. That's what the Christian faith is about, is an emphasis on love and mercy towards those around us. Not like spiritual freaks that I've said before who, you know, as I said, they go to church, they read, they pray, they even confess to all these things, but they don't care about no one else. Some might even take care of their family, but that's it. Past that, they don't care about anyone else, like Hitler. Now, Hitler... Loved his dogs, his Alsatians, the two of them, and loved the other one, not another dog, but the, uh, his girlfriend there, the um, Eva Braun. That's it. That's all he cared about. He cared about no-one else. Stalin cared. He didn't care for his son. He hated his son. But he did care for his daughter. That's it. He killed all the, uh, those Ukrainians and all those Russians, millions and millions that was a great holocaust. Do we hear about that? No, we only hear about the six million. But there's other holocausts. And he did that, but he cared for his daughter. So someone said, well, because someone said to me once, I care for my family. I said, but so did, so did Hitler. He cared for his girlfriend and his dogs. <laughs> right? But that's all he cared for. And everyone else doesn't... He, he, how many people did he kill as well? Not just Jews. Millions died. Gypsies died, homosexuals died, political prisoners died, um, clergymen died in the, in, in, in the death camps. So many Russian Slavs, they, they didn't have regard for anyone. Serbians, I think I said that. So, works of mercy make us when we, our heart is spread, not just for our family or not for those around us, but our heart has to be spread... And that's how we know if we are have a Christian spirit. If we don't feel anything for anyone else, then we are... like Some people have more care for their dogs, like he did. More care for their dogs. Give expensive food and treatment for their dogs. Thousands of dollars. You know about that. Hip replacements, $20,000 for their dogs. Full operations. For their dogs. And for their cats. And meanwhile there's people starving. But you see, when you watch these things on television, if those of you who watch it, you'll notice that no one dares to say anything. They actually have it. They'll say, this person spent $50,000 on operations to keep their mutt alive, right? And yet, no one ever puts them down because you're not allowed. You're not allowed to put anyone down about animals, about homosexuality, about... Um, what else is it? Women's rights is another one which has gone to the point of um, uh, really bad there as well women have rights but the way they've done it they've gone to the point where um, actually even in the schools they've changed the curriculum to be more suited towards girls and what they've noticed now they've got a crisis on their hand the boys have been affected because the curriculum was more geared towards the girls because of women's rights and at the end we got all these boys coming out which have been affected that's why in some schools they're trying to separate and say okay, let's get the boys away from the girls, put them separate and put them in some primary schools give them a male teacher and make them do manly things because that wasn't allowed because that's like sexism so we have boys there doing some um, sew and some um, scones Not that that's bad, because we know that there are male chefs, but um, (laughs) they also have to do some of their other stuff too, but they weren't allowed. Okay, we will end there. Where are we up to? Just let me just see. Oh, Works of Mercy. Just for our book time, these two... This, we've only got two more of these. Um, this, is a very, this is a very well-written book on the life of Saint Nectarius. It's a lot of detail, more than what I've done, but I'm putting my own stuff. So that's one book which I recommend. It's called Saint Nectarius, The Saint of Our Century. Um, and the other one is One of the Little Lives of Saints that we do, Volume 2. Holy Holy Herac Nectarius of Pentapolis. So that's another book which we have at the back and there's that one there. I think we've got a few of them but only two of them. Okay, so while he was teaching in the school, he emphasised three things. Number one, the importance of schooling, number two, and with this education that you learn from school, to be able to study the scriptures and the holy works of the church. And number three, he also emphasized that orthodox Christians should not accept the teachings and beliefs of the heterodox, in particular, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Those are the three things that St. Nectarius emphasised while teaching as a um, um, 20-year-old on the island of Chios in the school. That schooling is important. Greeks at that time were very illiterate. They were illiterate, um, uneducated. um, And that he believed that with that schooling that you learn how to read, that we use that to... Read the Holy Bible, etc. And three, to keep away from the Western churches, uh, the heterodox, in other words. Therefore, he not only taught the students the basic school subjects, but also, and most importantly, he instructed them in the great teachings of the Orthodox Church, in other words, Orthodoxy. he was often invited to preach in the village church because of his spirituality, etc. So he was stunned for his you know, desire. Not only was he teaching at school and not only was he also helping people in everyday life, but also he had the opportunity to preach in church uh, even though he was a layperson. The church does have what's called lay preachers, um, Greeks are into lay preachers I don't know about the Russians but in the Greek church they exist His main theme was again those three points that, he's, that he used to teach the children He would teach in church the importance of schooling to and using the education to learn how to read the scriptures and study them and to keep away from the heterodox Saint Anastasios Anastasios, sorry, was very much inspired by, at that time as he was known, Father Cosmas the Etolian, uh, or he, because he was from Etolia, Western Greece, he was a priest monk from Anathos. So, uh, of course, later on he would be known as Saint Cosmas, but at that time he wasn't canonized yet. He was known as Father Cosmas the Etolian in the. 18th century, the Orthodox Church, that means in the 1700s, the Orthodox Church was faced with growing number of defections among the poor and illiterate Orthodox to Islam, especially in the areas of Albania and Western Greece. We understand that better now that we've got that history over and done with over there. There, the Orthodox were under especially especially severe social, economic, and religious pressures by the dominant Muslims. Father Kuzmas had a burning desire to preach the Holy Gospel to the Greeks under Ottoman rule. Mount Athos was under Ottoman rule too. But anyway, he so he was at Man, while he was on Mount Athos, he was a priest monk, and he just couldn't he couldn't calm down. One can say because he knew. That many Greeks were leaving the church and going and, and, and becoming Muslims. And that unsettled him. But he didn't know whether that was from God or not, whether he, for him to leave, because as a priest, as a monk of Manathos, Athos, usually they don't leave. And um, he um, prayed and prayed and prayed, and then he went to the patriarch of Constantinople, and he liked the idea and gave him a blessing to leave Mount Athos and start travelling through many parts of Greece, preaching orthodoxy to the enslaved Greeks and he did this between 1760 and 1779, in other words, for 19 years. He was canonised in 1961, well after St. Tom, Nectarius lived, and his feast day is on the 24th of August. He is known as equal to the apostles, so we say St. Cosmas... Equal to the apostles, or Saint Cosmas, teacher of the Greek nation, or Saint Cosmas, apostle of the poor, he has those those, those um titles. I've been great blessing that I was named after him. The bishop that ordained me, without telling me at my at when I was tonsured to become a monk, he um, gave me the name of of um, Saint Cosmas, which coincidentally I was because I was ordained in Serbia, which. Um, if we can use coincidentally, whatever we can use, that, and Serbia goes with the old calendar, Uh, on the day that I was made a monk and given the name St. Cosmas in Greece, which with the new calendar, they were celebrating the feast of St. Cosmas, which I didn't know. And I just found, worked that out later on, and go, oh, I was made on the same day as Greece is celebrating St. Cosmas, which was... um, a blessing for me to get his name and to be made on the same day as his feast day in Greece. St. Cosmas believed in three things, one the importance of schooling, two and with this schooling to study the scriptures and three to avoid spiritual enslavement to the beliefs of Western Christians. What does that remind you of? They are identical to what St. Nectarius taught in his school to the students, what he preached in the church. That's, in other words, he was that much inspired by St. Cosmas. Therefore, it was St. Cosmos's belief that the establishment of schools where the Greek, or where the Orthodox faith would be taught would be able to save Greece from losing her Orthodoxy and Greek identity. Greece was in danger of falling completely away from orthodoxy from, from, and lose the Greek and everything. And that's what St. Cosmas and a few others did. Um, that's why they call him teacher of the, of, of, of the Greeks. He went through a lot of areas in Greece uh, preaching orthodoxy and bringing thousands of people back to their orthodox roots. Didn't like people speaking Albanian. For example, a lot of Greeks in certain parts of Greece, they spoke Albanian. And he said, don't speak Albanian, speak Greek, because because you're going to lose your Greek language and then you won't be able to study the, the word of God and understand all those precious treasures that are in Greek at the time. And he would say, if you promise not to speak Albanian, I'll pray for you, I'll take half of your sins, he would say all these type of things to the people that he was teaching. Um... In Greece even to today there are certain parts of Greece I don't know how, it's, how it is but there are certain parts in Greece where they speak Albanian but, but they've been there for centuries. My mother's village their first language was Albanian. I don't know how my grandmother for example she knew Albanian better than Greek so she would, she would speak Greek but when she spoke the, that language Albanitica as they say she spoke like a like a um, motor. She knew to speak. My mother spoke it as well. And um, that's how it was. But he didn't like that. Because he says, no, you must stick to the Greek. So what were St. Cosmas' teachings? Let's have a look at a few of his teachings to see how this young man was influenced. The first teaching I'll go through, St. Cosmas said, we become educated so we'll, so we'll know God's law even just that from the beginning. That's why we become educated. That's not what we tell our children today. We become educated to get a good job and this and that and that and that. You know, when I, when I speak to, to children that are going to the age of six or seven, if they're homeschooled, and, um, and they're going to learn to read, I say to them, are you going to learn to read soon? They go, yeah, I want to read. And I said, so why do you want to read? He goes, so I can read the prologue. That's the holy, the, the prologue. I want it so I can read the Bible. So I can sing things from church. Isn't that excellent? He didn't say so I can become whatever. So I can read the holy words. And that's what you should teach the children in the beginning. And later on, obviously, they use their education to to use their gifts to do to work at things as well. But the main aim of education, as St. Cosmas says, and St. Nectarius, and all our saints, is to learn God's law. Because... He continues, it is in school we learn who God is. Who is the Holy Trinity? Who are the angels? The demons? What is paradise? What is hell? What is virtue? What is evil? What is the soul? What's the body, etc.? Without a school, we walk in darkness. The school leads to the monastery. If there were no schools, how would I have learned to teach you? Remember that the people had become so ignorant in those days they couldn't even teach their own children. They didn't know, they didn't know their Orthodox faith. Schools were important that they were to be opened so that children can go to learn their orthodox faith, which their own parents a lot of times didn't know how to read and write and didn't know these things. And therefore, the schools that were opened, their main emphasis was the spiritual. St. Cosmas's brother opened up schools. He opened up hundreds of schools, St. Cosmas. Number two, blessed Christians. A large number of churches neither preserve nor strengthen our faith, as much as they should. If those who believe in God aren't enlightened by both the Old and New Testaments, he's saying, what's the point of having churches if people don't know and are not learning the law of God, which we learn from reading the Bible, etc. Because the Christians, some of them, they had churches, but they weren't being taught. Similar, like today, a bit too, because people are listening to the go to churches all in another language. And, people, and especially today, the ones who don't understand Greek or Slavonic or that, some churches are mixing up a bit, but a lot of them don't. And it's full in another language, and people walk, go in and walk out, and they only pick up a few of their words that they understand, maybe a gospel aleison, a few things like that, and walk out and learn nothing. And St. Kuzma says churches are not enough, but people must be taught. How can our nation be preserved without harm in its religion and freedom when the sacred clergy is disastrously ignorant of the meaning of the Holy Scriptures, which are the light and foundation of the faith? So he's saying that the priests at that time were disastrously ignorant of the Bible of orthodoxy. Today many of the priests I add have gone to theological schools and university and seminaries etc and unfortunately not all of them but a lot of them come out just as stupid as they were before they they graduated because they don't know. They don't teach the word of God either because they're scared, they don't know, They don't teach about things. They they say, I can't teach this, I'm scared of this, I can't teach about toll houses, I can't teach about the devil, I can't teach about uh, this or that, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Or they don't know how to teach it. And they don't even speak about the things that are happening to Christians today. People that are going to fortune tellers and things from TV and going to people to speak to the dead. And all these things are happening today and yet, do we hear it from the church? Not hardly any. You know, there's these meditations and there's Buddhism and this and heterodox and people sending their kids to, to heterodox schools and they're learning the, the Catholic creed and doing their cross. Greek kids and Orthodox kids are doing their cross back to front and there's a whole mess. So I would say that St. Klaus his words are probably true even to today. Can't you see how savage our race has become from ignorance? We've become like animals. This is why I counsel you to build schools so that you may understand the Holy Gospel and the other books of the church. You should study, my brethren. Learn as much as you can. It's another wonderful teaching. Number five, if you don't learn Greek, my brethren, you can't understand what our church confesses. It is better, my brother, for you to have a Greek school in your village rather than fountains and rivers For when your child becomes educated, he is then a human being. The school opens churches, the school opens monasteries. Now, I'm not trying to say this to you today because I'm saying, do do you want us to learn Greek? Well, that's a bit silly because I don't even know it hardly myself. What I'm trying to say to you is that the importance of education, how he looked at it, that influenced uh, St Nectarius. But today, thanks God, that we have m- m- a lot of the books in, eng- in English. I just read English. I, why should I read Greek? For to me, it's too tiring. I don't understand a lot of it. it, it um, I find it too strenuous. Some people say you should read Greek because you learn the original. You learn the that, That's true. I'm not inclined. So if I can have my freedom, I don't want to. I rather, I've got uh, plenty of English books to read. And English services like we did today in full English just about. And to me, I think in English. I read in English. I speak in English. I feel in English. And all of a sudden I'm going to go and pray in Greek. It doesn't go. I studied about priests and about unbelievers. I studied about heretics and atheists. I searched the depths of wisdom, but all the faiths are false. I I learned this to be true that only the faith of the Orthodox Christians is good and is sacred, in other words, holy, to believe and to be baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. See these words? Simple, powerful, to the heart. That's how he, that's how he taught. And that's why he converted thousands upon thousands. He, saved, he was one of the ones that saved Greece. Our faith wasn't established by ignorant saints but by wise and educated saints who interpreted the Holy Scriptures accurately and who enlightened us sufficiently by inspired teachings. The saints, a lot of them, were, greatly, were, were very educated. And they, together with the enlightenment from God, they interpreted the Scriptures and other teachings of the Church. In conclusion, I tell you this. Rejoice that you are Orthodox Christians and weep for the impious and heretic's who walk in darkness? Some people think this to say, "See, he's putting down." No, he says, "Weep, not hate. Weep, pray for the others that have not got the true faith, but not hate them, not discard them, but weep for them." Meaning that you feel and they say, "Well, how I would like them to also have the holy treasure of the Orthodox faith." It doesn't mean you're going to go and convert them by force. But that's what he said, weep for them, not hate. On many occasions, St. Cosmas firmly prophesied the independence of Greece from the hands of the Turks. In other words, he predicted that the freedom of Greece would come within three generations of the generation then living that he was speaking to. And I worked it all out for you and you'll find it very interesting. This is his exact words. That which is desired, he he never used to say it fully, Because if the Turks heard, then they would stop him speaking. He had to be very careful. So he said, That which is desired, Topothumun, as he used to say, "the, the desired, in other words, freedom, which he wouldn't say the word, will come in the third generation. Your grandchildren will see it. His prophecies regarding this stirred up the hopes of Greece and were one of the major factors that caused them to intensify their efforts at achieving Greece's liberty and providing a glorious future. So the Greeks, hearing these prophecies from him and from others, I think, as well, became enthusiastic, and that's what gave them this energy to fight for their freedom. That, that They said, Father Cosmas said it. We will get our freedom. In fact, Greece gained her independence from the Turks, uh, actually, it was 1830, 30, the, the, the war was between 1821 and 1832 and they finally declared their independence in 1833. So let's look at that. We know that St. must preach from 1760 to 1779. He preached for 19 years. When he made these prophecies, I'm not sure, but let's go in the middle, let's go around 1770. A generation's around 25 years. So, two generations, or well, he said that the third generation means not the present one, one, two. It's 50 years. So, 1770, or well, more and less, I don't know exactly when, when he made these prophecies, but it's between those 19 years, plus 50, some say generations 30, but I'll just say 50, equals 1820, 1821. St. Cosmas informs. That the Christians should condemn the position of the Pope, since he will be the root of many ecclesiastical catastrophes. You should curse the Pope because he will be the cause. When we say curse the Pope, we curse the institution of the papacy, not the man himself, but we the the what the papacy stands for. And they are the cause of many problems. Look at the Ukraine now, for those unions where they actually. Have churches and priests that look exactly like Orthodox, but they're Catholic, and people, the Ukrainian Orthodox, don't know. They go to their churches, and they think they're Orthodox, but they're really Catholic, and that's trickery. It's... So St. Cismas knew, and the, and the, and the the fathers of the, a lot of the fathers of the church says there's three great falls, if I remember. The first great fall was Lucifer when he fell from heaven. The second great fall was Judas, and the third great fall was the Pope, was was when Catholicism fell away from the Orthodox Church. It was a great catastrophe because all those people that, you know, there, doesn't mean they're going to be lost, it's not my business, I'm just saying how the Church Fathers look. Actually, the Muslims when When Constantinople fell in fourteen fifty three they wanted a patriarch they still allowed the Greeks to have a patriarch and they wanted a patriarch who was anti-West, anti west anti anti catholicism. every patriarch had to be anti the anti west because the Turks were scared that the Greeks will get help from the Catholics and and take over back and come and take their country the their area again the Byzantine Empire or whatever the area is so the muslims preferred bishops and patriarchs who were anti-west and so do i because we have a lot we have a lot of them now who are pro-west they want union you see them going there to the pope and kissing his hand as one bulgarian fellow poor thing he was becoming He was outside of himself when he went to meet the Pope. I think he was a bishop too. And when he went to the Pope, he was agitated. I thought he was going to knock the Pope over. And he was (laughs) bowing down and kissing his hand. And then Serbian priests went there. And other Russians have gone there. Like Greeks have gone there. And they just fall down at this man's feet. So we are having problems just like then. So actually, St. Cosmas said, and many of the other fathers Better, because of our sins, the Greeks are going to lose their empire because of the sins of the Greeks. They're going to lose the empire. And there was two two choices. Either the Turks were going to take over or the West because the West dearly wanted to convert all Orthodox Christians to Catholicism. And we saw their mania in Croatia. We know about that there. So... And St. Cosmas and others said, better to have as our head the Turks than to have the mitre of the Pope. Because the Turks, you pay them, you can get whatever you want. But the others, the, the, the the, the, the Catholics, they will not rest until they convert every single person. If we were taken over by them, there would be no orthodoxy today. Being a true zealot and supporter of the monastic life, he often visited the sacred monastery of the Holy Fathers on heels. as a monastery which was called the Holy Fathers. The well-known spiritual father and restorer of that monastery, Elder Pachomios, who lived between 1840 and 1905, guided many upon the spiritual path. He would often engage in spiritual talks with Anastasios on monasticism and the ascetic life. This Pachomios was later on recognised as a saint. He's called Saint Pachomios of Chios, October the 14th. And here's the one on the talk on prayer, number 39 or 40 or something. If you remember that icon. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think this is it. That's Saint Nectarius as a layperson speaking to Saint Pachomius of Chios about the spiritual life. See, spiritual people are attracted to spiritual people. Corrupt people are attracted to corrupt. Today, the church is divided without a doubt. There's those who are pro-West, pro-Union, pro-modernism and all these type of things, and we have the others that are traditionalists. Everyone's got their choice who they want to uh, be attracted to. Saint Nectarius was attracted to this this great father. and uh, this. Now, I'm going to go a little bit technical, but I won't start on too long because some of you are not familiar with it, but some are. It is interesting to note that St. Pachomius of Chios was part of the what's called the Kolivadus movement. Kolivadas movement. Koliva Coliv- is the Greek word for the wheat that we boil when we do the memorial prayers for the dead. What happened was that in, on Manathos there in the, in the Skeet, St. Anne's Skeet, which is a, like a little area there in Manathos, um, some, some of the monks in one of the houses there they were building a church or something, and what happened was that traditionally we do the memorial prayers for the dead on the Saturday. And what they were doing is they were working on Saturday, so they said, We haven't got time on the Saturday, why don't we move it to the Sunday? And then one of the fathers in the skeet, whose name was Capsu and Kapsukalivitis, was one of the fathers there, he said, That's not Orthodox, you do not pray for the dead on Sunday because Sunday's resurrectional, um, we, that's a day of joy, and we do it on Saturday. They said no, and this and that, and there became this big argument on Manathos, and a lot of those people who were strict followers of Orthodox tradition, they threw them out. This um, Holy Father was actually even defrocked. He was called a heretic, and he was defrocked. The patriarch of Constantinople went against a lot of them, and, and um, this movement began on Manathos Athos in the middle of the 18th century and later became, because of persecution, spread to different parts of Greece. So the persecutions in a way was good because it made these people have to leave Manathos. Athos. They had to go to different parts of Greece and from there they started teaching the proper spirituality to other parts of Greece so spread orthodoxy to other People. Like the, the the Christians in Jerusalem, when the persecution started after Christ's crucifixion, especially after the Romans attacked and things like that in 70-something, um, the Christians started to run to different areas in the uh, Roman Empire. And because of that, Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. And later on, the persecuting Roman Empire that persecuted the Christians for 300 years under Saint Constantine the Great, accepted it and freed it. And a few years later, under Theodosius the Great, I think, they proclaimed that the official religion of the Roman Empire is now orthodoxy. So that shows you that persecutions have their purpose. And in this case, these holy fathers, they had to leave Mount Athos and spread true orthodox spirituality throughout the whole of Greece, the different parts of Greece. Some of the well-known fathers of the Colivadas movement are Neophytos, Capsucallivides, Saint Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, Saint Macarius of Corinth, whose memory we celebrate tomorrow, by the way, Saint Savas of Kalymnos, Saint Athanasius of Paros, Saint Paisios Velichovsky, even here that he came down and then he took this pure orthodoxy back up to his area and spread it throughout uh, R- R- Moldavia and Russia and things, and Saint Kosmas Uh, etolos, to name a few. So St. Cosmas was was part of this movement as well. Strict follower of orthodoxy, of the prayer of the heart, etc. These fathers were known for their strict orthodoxy in spiritual life and their opposition to any Western influence. Today, by the way, let me tell you, there are orthodox Christians who hate St. Nicodemus. They say he's against the, the Catholics. They even hate Saint Nectaris, which we'll see later on. And they're against all these great saints because they're against the West. Every single saint of the Orthodox Church is against the Western, is against the West in, in um, the West's religion. Saint Justin Popovich, Saint Nikolai Velomirovich, Saint Nectaris, you go, every single saint. St John of Kronstadt, the, the Optina Elders, every single great saint of the Orthodox Church is anti-West. But we have today one, one, one blasphemer in Europe, a bishop, Orthodox bishop, you know what he said? He said, when the church in the 4th Ecumenical Council anathematized those who believe in one nature of Christ and not the two natures of Christ... Because the Orthodox believe that Christ is two natures, man and God. The Monophysites, like the Coptics and all that, they actually uh, didn't accept the forfeit Ecumenical Council. And that's why they've got these, these talks. That's okay, talk. But don't pray together. Try and bring them to Orthodoxy, but don't betray the faith. And all these other people over there, they say that um, we will not accept the forfeit Ecumenical Council. We believe the same as you, but we're not going to accept the forfeit Ecumenical Council. Why? Because they don't believe in it. And this bishop said, "This this bishop said, those fathers who in the who during the fourth ecumenical council anathematized or they did those they they denounced um, those all those people for not following, they never had love." But today we have love. And with love we're gonna join. I oh, didn't bring my bucket. So um, but people say, Oh, we have to leave the church. It's a communism. But this has happened for this happened this has been happening from um, these pro-West people have been since the Pope first started. In the ninth century, Pope Nicholas, he started this thing that he's the head, that he's the representative of Peter. And it's gone on and on and on and on and on. For for hundreds of years, the church has always had within its group pro-West, anti-West. Now, those who are pro-West are uh, in their modern destroying nearly everything Orthodox, have no respect at all for fathers. Then we've got um, the others, who, by the way, coincidentally, are all saints, who are against. So who, would, who do we follow? And if you go on the internet, which you shouldn't really, but I've just some things I was searching once, and I'd come across, and I was saying, Saint Nectarius is anti-West, and this saint, Saint Nicodemus, he's a beast, and this and that and that and that. These are orthodox people. So let us stand well, let us stand with fear that's what the priest says in the liturgy just after the creed let us stand well let us stand with fear so that we may attend the holy oblation in peace what does he mean why does the priest say let us stand well after the creed because if we do not have orthodoxy of faith if we do not confess orthodoxy which is why we say the creed just before the holiest moment of the liturgy which is when the priest, through the priest, the, um, the body, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. If we do not hold to orthodoxy, we have no right to be present in this, in this part of the liturgy. And that's why the priest or the deacon, if there's one, let us stand well, let us stand with fear that we may attend the holy oblation, the holy offering in peace. So, these fathers were known for their orthodoxy, their strict uh, following of orthodoxy and spiritual life, and their opposition to the West, that is, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Their struggle was for the return to orthodox traditions. And St. Saint- Cosmas was right, because after Greece became free in 18, especially after it was declared in 1833, all the Westerns, Westerners come in, came in to enlighten people to accept Christ. Protestants, Catholics, they all started uh, pouring into Greece to convert the Christians to believe in Christ. But I thought Orthodoxy does believe in Christ, so what are they doing there? Obviously, to convert them. After teaching on the island for seven years, he entered the great and renowned monastery called the New Monastery at the age of 27, after being guided for seven years by the Holy Elder Pachomios, So after he was guided for many years by a holy person he then felt this inclination not to go to Manathos and become a hermit, but to become a monk in the monastery on Chios. He now had the opportunity to attend orthodox services every day because in the monastery they do services every day. Most importantly, however, novice Anastasios quickly understood that the basis of monasticism is humility and that this is acquired through obedience After three years as a novice, which is usually how much it is, he was tonsured a monk with the name Lazarus in 1876 at the age of 30. Because of his virtue of humility, he was immediately appointed secretary of the monastery, which doesn't usually happen because people can get proud, but this this holy father was full of humility that the abbot said, we can make him the secretary of the monastery without him losing himself like today you give someone a position and they just lose themselves. It's like even if you give them a job, okay this is your job, I want you to every time we have a talk to put this icon here and all of a sudden from their delusion, their pride it becomes theirs, that's their job, that's their position and they can become like crazy and that's because people are very inclined to pride. What attracted the Holy One to this monastery? Why did St. Nectarius visit this monastery, which was the centre of the Kolivadas movement of this strict following of orthodoxy? Because, well, there's a few reasons. In 1821, um, 55 years before St. Nectarius was there, 200 monks, as I mentioned earlier, were martyred by the Turks, in addition to this, a previous abbot of New Monastery was also a member of the Kalyuvadas movement, Saint Nikiforos of Chios. It was no coincidence Saint Nektaris found himself connected to these monasteries and holy fathers. He was strongly attracted to them because he was of the same spirit as them. Actually, Saint Nectaris is considered one of the holy fathers of the Kalyuvadas movement. He wrote volumes and volumes of books on spiritual life, etc., etc., and orthodoxy, and he was anti-West, yes. He was anti-West, but according to these people, that means he's bad. But yet, myrrh came from them, while the others, when they die, would probably come out like a sewage would come from them. So see the difference? And you might say, oh, you're very rude. That's just, how can you make such an analogy? Well the reason being is because you weren't shocked, or some of you weren't shocked when I said that these people are saying all these blasphemous things, you weren't shocked. Some of you were, but some of you weren't. So therefore, I brought out the big guns. Three months after he was tonsured, the Metropolitan, Gregory of Chios, ordained him to the diaconate very quickly, again that doesn't usually happen, but quickly with the name Nectarius in honour of Saint Nectarius, Patriarch of Constantinople, commemorated 11th of October. While at New Monastery, he unceasingly studied the Holy Scriptures and the sacred writings of the Holy Fathers. He continued to have a burning desire to study theology so that he might become useful to his fellow Christians. The more he studied these writings, the more intense became his desire to study theology, even though the financial means for further Formal study was were inadequate. The monastery could not afford to send him to study because they were living. They were, a lot of these places were very poor, so he still wanted it. He still wanted to go and study, but there was uh, no chance of that because of the um, the monastery had no money to send him to um, finish his schooling. He hadn't finished high school yet. A few days after his ordination to the diaconate. Metropolitan Gregory called Father Nectarius to his office. When he entered, he was introduced to the well-known millionaire, Mr John Horemis, a leading citizen of the island of Hios and a great benefactor and supporter of the church. So the Metropolitan invited him, and Father Nectarius walked in at the time, and he saw this man, he knew, he had recognised him. Um, he was a, a um, rich person, but also an important person, and a benefactor of the church. used to use his money to help the church. On a previous occasion, the the Metropolitan had spoken highly about, Metropolitan Gregory, had spoken to this John Miss, person here about Father Nectarius, about his holy life, his asceticism, his prayer, his study of the scriptures and the holy fathers of the church. Furthermore, the Metropolitan had explained that Father Nectarius had a great desire to finish high school in order to serve the church. For this reason, John Horemis wanted to meet Father Nectarius because he heard so much about him. So he made this meeting with the Metropolitan. So in comes the the, the, uh, Father Nectarius. During this meeting, Mr Horemis asked Father Nectarius how he came to Chios. Father Nectarius told him how he was born in Silivria and how he attempted to board a ship for Constantinople even though he had no money. He told him about how the ship's engine would not start, and that the captain felt sorry for him and permitted him to board the ship. He then spoke to him how the ticket collectors came and that the captain wasn't available, leaving him with no one to verify his presence on the ship. And then he said, one kind gentleman uh, took pity on me and paid my fare. While he was saying this story, while well, Father Nectaris was saying this story, he noticed that Mr Horomis' eyes became teary. The Metropolitan Gregory thought that something was wrong and went over to um, the man to see what was wrong with him. Why was he crying for? The man said, so, you were the child. We have often thought of you and longed to see you again. That is, my nephew and I. Father Nectarius was perplexed. What's, he didn't understand what was going on. He didn't understand what the man was saying. Mr. Horemis then revealed that it was his nephew who had paid for his ticket on the boat to Constantinople many years ago. And he said, um, My nephew told me the whole account, and since then we have been looking for you. Thank God we have found you. Both the Metropolitan and Father Nectaris were surprised with this amazing revelation. Mr. Horamis continues, Now that we have found you, I shall ask his eminence, Gregory, for a blessing for you to leave for Athens and complete your high school certificate at my expense. So God enlightened Mr Horemis, a wealthy citizen of Hios, to send the deacon, the newly ordained deacon, Father Nectarius, to Athens to study at his expense. Mr Horemis had long desired to sponsor and educate someone who could enlighten Greece's uneducated people. He saw in this deacon a worthy man whom he could have complete trust. So his desire, this rich man's desire was, I want to sponsor, I want to send someone to study so that that person can go and, and um, bring people back to orthodoxy because a lot of people, as we, as we said before, were losing their faith due to many reasons. Father Nectarius, now 31 years old, boarded a ship heading for Athens. His joy was indescribable when, as he arrived in Athens, in 1877, the city in which great luminaries of the Church as St Gregory the Theologian and Basil the Great had studied earlier on. The saint rejoiced that he was finally fulfilling his desire to study, blessing the all-holy name of the Heavenly Father, while praying for his benefactor, Mr Horemis. Father Nectaris applied himself diligently day and night to his high school studies. Remember, he was... Over 30 now, he's studying his high school. So much for those who go, no, you've got to go to school and at 18, then you go to uni, then you go to 22, then you go this and you do that. has got to be like, the, no room to let people develop. It's got to be like that. You go to school at five. While you're there, you suffer. Then you go and you graduate after you've done the HSC. For after you've done the high school certificate, then you've got to go to university. If you don't, you're a failure, you're worthless, you're disgusting and we don't love you at all. Then you graduate from university and you must get a job. If you don't get a job, you're a loser, etc., 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 etc. So it's got to be all—it's got to be all within the, the thing. There's no room for people to do. That's why I love this the, this life because it's like 31 or 32, or whatever, and he hasn't even finished high school yet. And when you read the lives of saints, that's what I love. It's everyone's individual. Today, everyone's like um, clones or something. It's got to go there. Five and this and that. Everyone's programmed. During that, they've got to watch certain TV shows so they can become developed. Father Nectarius applied himself diligently day and night to his, to his high school studies. He only knew two paths, the one leading to the school and the one going to church every Sunday and feast day, like the, some, some of the saints. That's it, two paths. During his years in Athens, he spent his free time in small religious gatherings like talks, with acquaintances and taking summer trips to hear some back, and probably went to some monasteries, etc. Having studied for approximately four years, Father Nectaris received his high school diploma at around thirty-five years old. Imagine some parents today—they'll pull their hair, whatever's, whatever's, whatever little's left, because I'll be old by that time. because I'm usually. They usually have kids at 30 now. So if the, if the person graduates at 35, they'll be about 65. So they'll pull out their hands saying, how can you graduate so early then? It's 18. 18, you've got to finish school. This was around 1881 to 1882 around there. So he finished his, his, his um, high school certificate, one can say, at 35 years old, to the great pleasure of his benefactor, Mr. Homer Miss. This was around that time. He then recommended that Father Nectarius meet with his personal friend, the patriarch of Alexandria Sophronios in Egypt. And he said to Father Nectaris, you go and meet him, he's a very good person and all that. Shortly after, Father Nectaris left Chios for Piraeus and from Piraeus he then travelled on a big steamship for Egypt. On arriving at Alexandria, deacon Nectaris met with patriarch Sophronios who at this time was 80 years old, right? And um, n- a note now, the title of the Patriarch of Alexandria is as follows, so just so that you know. So you say his name, Sophronios, Pope and Patriarch of the great city of Alexandria, Libya, the Pentopolis, Ethiopia, all Egypt, and all Africa. So we actually, uh, the Patriarch of Alexandria is also referred to as Pope. So people think that Pope only belongs to the um, the Vatican, but in the the tradition of the Orthodox Church, he's called Pope and Patriarch. The first Bishop of Alexandria was St Mark the Evangelist. The Patriarch was very impressed by the humility and holiness of Deacon Nectarius and took a liking to him and took him under his care. The Patriarch, however, had a weakness in his character. Uh, Either he liked you or he disliked you, so you can say he either liked you, loved you, or he did not like you. Was just, there was no in between for him. He advised Deacon Nectarius to go back to Athens and enroll in the university to study theology. He was the, the saint was lucky. he liked him. So because he liked him, he said, you know, you go to the, you go and study theology. I will I will be um, here waiting for you when you return. I will give you a letter of recommendation to the university. I will support you and await your return. The patriarch then counselled him to keep on the path that he set him for himself and should avoid worldly people. Good that's, a good. that's a good thing. Avoid worldly people. Today, Orthodox Christians mix with people that are not Orthodox in a way that they can't see any difference. And he um, might say, but yeah, but we're not going to become priests or deacons and we're not going to, you know, do this. That, but that's, that advice is for everyone. Bad company corrupts people. That's why I love that story. That um, I think it was, um, they say, Michelangelo, I'm not sure, the one who painted the, the in the Sistine Chapel, the last... It was What did he paint up there? Was it the Last Supper? Yeah, The Last Supper. And then he had to get people to sit in front of him so that he can... Um, um, use them as a way to paint unlike the Orthodox iconographers they're inspired and we have beautiful anyway their stuff's atrocious but millions of people go and look at them so let's have a look so he was there and he picked certain people so he picked the person he goes I'm going to have to paint Christ now and I want someone who looks pure and nice etc etc so he found this young man and he said I want you to pose and for, and for, for me to paint you so he painted him as Christ there in the in the figure. And after that, he painted the other apostles, and at the end, he had to come to Judas. So he had to paint... some. you had, had to find someone who looked off, dark, to be Judas. So he picked someone that, that looked like that. So he started painting him, and he noticed that the person that he was painting was crying. So the artist said, Why are you crying? He says, Because... I've been here before. And he goes, you? I don't remember you. Probably said, especially with a black face like that. I've never, I don't know who, who you are. He goes, yes, I was here before. I was the person that you painted for Christ. And then the artist said, I can't believe this. This is, this is completely two different people. And then the, um, the, the man said, bad company corrupts. See, he hanged around with the wrong people and he became corrupt. And then from an angelic looking person to a demonic looking person and that's how we become when we hang around with people who are not struggling orthodox christians the so the patriarch's plan was to send him to athens to study theology so he could better care for the needs of the orthodox christians of the patriarch of alexandria in egypt father nectarius then left alexandria and traveled to piraeus which is a port in greece and then to chios because he was still a clergyman of Heels officially. He, had to, he needed permission from his monastery, a new monastery, in order to study in Athens. So he went there, spoke to the abbot. The abbot was very happy and says he agrees with the patriarch's plan for Father Nectarius to go to um, the university in Athens to study theology, and he also gave him a letter of recommendation. Father Nectarius then left Heels for Athens, and he was very happy that his lifelong desire to study theology was finally becoming a reality. But his happiness was suddenly changed at the sad news at the death of his benefactor, Mr John Horamiss. This news deeply hurt him. That same night, he kept vigil for the repose of the soul of the servant of God, John. So he was hurt. He loved this man. This man paid for him to, become, to go to, you know, to study, to finish school, and he was going to pay for him to study at university. And suddenly he died and he was—he really lo- he loved him so much and he was really wounded with this news. So, and that's what happens to people. You go, oh, but he's a saint. Well, Christ cried with Lazarus. As a human, Christ cried. But as God, of course, he rose him from the dead. Christ has two natures. So obviously, as Saint Nicodemus the Athenite says that it's not wrong to cry as long as you're crying for the right reason. Either you're crying because the person died in sins and you're praying for their repose or, you're, or, you're, um, or you can cry because you're not going to see the person until you yourself go to heaven, if that's where the person went and that's where, where we're going to go. But not to cry with some, like, unbelievers crying. They go to, you go to funerals, orthodox funerals, and there's people trying to jump in coffins and jump in the... Um, in the, what do you call it, the uh, the grave. That's why I think they don't bury them anymore more people around. They've got to go. The grave diggers won't do it. Because I think, who knows, some of them might have been accidentally um, pushed in. So they don't... They don't... Uh, that, that's I don't believe that people should take children to those type of funerals. Because it just terrorises them. That's just horrible. Women screaming, men crying, etc. Take them to... Uh, funerals where there's someone pious, Orthodox Christians have died, or a priest, or a monk, or a nun, and you see the different atmosphere, the beautiful uh, atmosphere of the um, of the funeral. Those funerals are very inappropriate, especially for um, young children. They become they have a, a negative a negative experience of death. But anyway, when people say to me that they're upset that someone's died close to them. We look at the example of St. Nectarius. What did he do? He prayed for his beloved benefactor, John. And that's why... I many, many people that I've... Um helped and said to them, there's an acathus to Jesus Christ for a loved one who has fallen asleep, beautiful service, and has some. so, and this is what you do, don't waste your time crying, 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 I mean obviously you're going to cry, but the person needs prayers, not just your tears, tears aren't going to help them, but even the flowers aren't going to help them, expensive graves aren't going to help them, what they need is prayers, to help them through the toll houses, to help them for their repose. And that's why it's important. See, Akathis to Jesus Christ for a loved one who has fallen asleep and for those overseas, produced by uh, St. Paisio's Orthodox Monash- Monastery in uh, Ar- Arizona. They're under the Serbian Church. So people have said to me, once, they've, once they read this, their heart begins to calm down and they begin to become peaceful. And I said, okay, also do good deeds in their name, give money to the poor, especially commemorate their name for 40 days in liturgies. That's how you help a loved one. Here we have the example of St. Nectarius that he prayed personally as well for the repose, which, which, which we do when we read those books, but also obviously he would have commemorated him in the liturgies, etc. With the death of his great benefactor, Father Nectaris now found himself without financial means to study at university. He was reluctant to ask financial assistance from the Patriarch of Alexandria so as not to burden him. He decided to sit for a university exam, which won him a scholarship and 100 drachmas a month. He enrolled in theology at university in Athens in 1882 at the age of 36. 36 years old and um, he was obviously an intelligent person because he sat for this scholarship and he got it. Some saints are intelligent and some of our saints were very simple and they weren't academic at all. We have um, uh, a mixture of saints. Some were ultra, ultra intelligent And when you've got spirituality and intelligence, that's how they do all these writings and great teachings. Saint Nikolai, he was an intellectual genius. Saint Justin Popovich, educated, great fathers of the church. But when you've got intelligence and impiety, when you've got intelligence and heresy, then those people become dangerous because they're using their gift and telling people that we live in a Western society and our Christmas is at the different time for the new calendars and, and for the old. Because um, while we're having Christmas, if the, oh, sorry, with the old calendar because new calendars have the same Christmas, when we have Christmas, the Serbians, the Russians, etc., they have to go to work or they've got to take days off. And Pascha's different, Easter, there's different days. Like this year, you know, it fell on Great Friday, fell on Working Day. Great Monday, the day, not Great Monday, the uh, bright Monday, the day after Pascha, which is usually you, you don't go to work. Again, people had to go to work. So what we need to do is we need to change the calendar for, the, for, for Pascha, so that we can have it at the same time as the West. See? Nice, etc. Really subtle, using emotion, using all these things. Have you ever been to Africa? You could be there and all of a sudden you're in the mouth of a lion. Just come up so slowly and engulf. That's how these people are. That's how these people are. They've got intelligence and they're using their intelligence to fight orthodoxy. But whoever fights orthodoxy will be crushed. They think think that they're gonna win, but they're not. But they are causing a lot of damage for people that are ignorant. For people who are studying orthodox material, the correct material, and are enlightened by reading those lives, lives of saints and fathers. They won't be tricked because they are learning. See, you read Saint Cosmas, you read the life of Saint Nectarius, etc. You, we learn. The people who these bishops and priests dupe, as we say, trick, are stupid people. People who, who haven't got time to study. Now, there are some people that are illiterate and I feel, feel for them. But even they, if they listen, even to the gospel in church, they will pick up that something's not right. And God, if you see someone with a good disposition, even if that person doesn't understand what's being read in church, God will enlighten that person that when they hear that type of demonic preaching, that that person will feel in their heart something's not right. So, while at university, Father Nectaris carefully studied the writings of the Church Fathers with a humble mind and heart. It was at this time that he began to write spiritual books and pamphlets. Uh, so he was studying. At the same time, he was even writing some articles, etc., pamphlets, spiritual books, in 1885, at the age of 39, deacon Nectarius completed his studies at the University of Athens and received the degree of Bachelor of Theology after four years of study. Once again, he found himself on, on a boat back to Alexandria. On arriving in Alexandria, the Patriot again welcomed Father Nectarius with open arms. In 1886, at the age of 40, deacon Nectarius was ordained priest by the patriarch himself. The church was full to capacity with the faithful. He was also made a confessor in the Greek Church. People do not automatically become confessors. In the Serbian and other the Russian Church, each priest, if they're ordained even at 20 or 21, they become spiritual fathers or confessors. That doesn't. That's. I don't like that to be truthful. That just should be the Greek has got it has got it correct. They give this. Uh, only with the blessing from the bishop to those priests who have experienced and are able to guide souls. I think that was the reason. I'm going to, probably going to get attacked for this. I think that was one of the downfalls of Russia before the revolution was that these a lot of these priests did not know how to guide souls. That's why people used to run to the monasteries, to the Optan elders and other monasteries, etc., Manathos, others around... It says, confess to people who were true physicians of the soul. And um, that's, that's a Slavic practice. Um, anyway, he was made a confessor straight away, which usually does not happen in the Greek church. It might take 10, 20, 20 years for some priest to become a confessor. But the patriarch saw that he was very, very spiritual and made him a confessor straight away. At his ordination, the patriarch praised him for his virtues and theological knowledge. Now, this praising is, to me, is a bit um, uh, thingless. He actually was praising him and going on and on in the church about how great this, the, 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 the newly ordained priest is. Obviously, if a person understands praise, they wouldn't do it. So he did it. That's saying something, but we'll see as time goes on. In response to this praise, uh, Father Nectarius just said, I, uh, "He said uh, he said that he is a sower of the word of God. He said the seed of grain is small and insignificant. When you get a seed, you throw it in the ground, and from that little seed grows trees, etc., plants. Yet when it is planted, it comes to life and keeps on producing an abundance of fruit. One little seed you can make an orange tree, and then every year produces oranges." One from one little seed. Such is the word of God, which are not just words, but is actually so powerful that when it is preached, it plants itself into the hearts of its listeners. And which 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 is which is his, his, his. Obviously, he's got it there, hasn't he? That that's what Christ said. Spread the word. And wherever some it says Christ says some fell on the ground. And birds came and took it. Some fell on dry, dry ground, it couldn't grow, never had proper soil, moisture. Some fell in the weeds and was tangled up and some fell properly and they grew and produced fruit, 30, 60, 100. So St. Nectaris is saying here that this is what he believes and this is, of course, is, is, um, is correct. The word of God is power. And we've said this because I did that talk, which is, which is better Miracles of the Word of God and all those talks that I did a while ago. I'm not going to repeat it now. So, um, unfortunately, he continues, not all hearts are like fertile soil and they do not accept the Word of God. The Lord is patient, however, and awaits for unaccepting hard hearts to soften and accept him and his Word. Isn't that wonderful? So some people, even tonight, preach, preach, I'm, I'm going on, And some seed that I'm saying will fall into hearts that will take it and it will grow. And other people will reject. Okay. Their hearts are not fertile. They're not ready. They haven't been softened. And what Christ does is he waits for those people, for their hearts to become softened. What does it mean by softened? The ones who don't accept the word of God are usually those who are proud of spirit. And what we say by soften is for the so- heart to become soft, to become humble. Only, hum- only those who are humble can receive the Word of God, just like the soil. You can't just throw seeds into any soil it has to be prepared, softened, fertilized, etc, and then it's ready. That's the same as the heart. The heart of people need to be f- ready. softened how? Through afflictions, through problems, all these things. and then when that per- see a person You can talk to a person and you can see that the words are bouncing off. They don't accept. But then, and people will say, oh, they say to me, you just talked to that person and he didn't care at all. He's a devil. He's this, is that. And I said, no, don't say that. He's just not ready. And then five years later or ten years later, you see the same person... After he's had a couple of divorce and a few other problems and this and that, softened. You come and you speak, and then they grab the word of God, and it grows in their heart. See, some people just need smacks. We all do, actually. I didn't come to the. I, I came to the church when I was around 25, but not, and it wasn't just through a few little smacks. It was, it was quite quite bad. But thanks God, at least I'm. I, 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 Because my heart was hard. So therefore, that's what happens. We need to be softened through afflictions and sufferings, through our falls, etc. Even people in the church. People can go to church and the word of God does not penetrate, even though they look like Orthodox Christians. They kiss icons, they even confess some of them. They do some prayers, pharisaical, of course. They fast, like the Pharisees, etc., and do a couple of good deeds. And they are... Like you say that they are leading an a, a orthodox life. But nothing's penetrating. Their heart's still proud. They're proud. And that's why God allows for them to go through some afflictions. Either a big fall. They fall into some big sin. Some sicknesses. A death in the family. A loss of job. It could be many, many things. And then that person's heart becomes softened from all the afflictions. And then the word of God can grow in them. Five months later... He was given the title of Archimandrite, which again does not happen straight away. Shortly thereafter, he received the honour of being appointed preacher and secretary of the Patriarchate, like another, like he, like he became the, and usually for preaching, you have to wait a while for the person to develop, etc. He was appointed two months after his ordination, or, two, or three months, I'm more confused. Anyway, he was appointed quickly. And he was also given, he was appointed to the higher position of patriarchal trustee. I don't know what that means, but obviously it's a high position in the, in the patriarchate there. Archimandrite Nectarius was very grateful to the patriarch for all his love and care. I am forever grateful, he would often say. In fact, he felt that way until the day he died. He always felt grateful for the patriarch's love and these things that he was doing for him. See, he either hates you or he loves you obviously this patriarch loved him and gave him everything let's see if it gives him more these sudden elevations caused the holy one some concern and anxiety he feared that the quick promotions and honor the respect that he was now receiving from people etc might compromise his principles and faith he thought that because he was getting all these positions that he might start compromising his faith not to you know what happens is when you go higher 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 you usually got to be careful not to tread on toes. You've got, to you got to compromise. Go with the flow, as they say. And he was scared of all that. In order to avoid such a thing, which he wholeheartedly feared. Isn't that, isn't that a, a great teaching there? He feared. Feared what? Feared that he might get wrinkles. Feared that he might go grey, like today. What, what did he fear? Like today, people fear all those things. See, some women, they're scared of little thing and operation after operation after operation. I don't know how many operations can they do. Operations on their stomach, operations on their thighs, operation on their backsides, operation on their face, and men are doing the same now. There's actually a special over in America where kids eight years old are going under the knife for cosmetic surgery. It's gone out of hand. That's what people fear today, mostly. I'm scared I'm going to get Alzheimer's. I'm scared I'm going to become grey. I'm scared I'm going to become bald. So, you know, I know some people that they said, oh, I read in a book that if you stand on your head, you won't go bald, right? <laughs> other women say, oh, you know, if you put honey and other all these things, most of the time they're using these chemicals which goes into their skin and poisoning them. Their hair dies, etc." They even do that while they're pregnant so they can make, make sure that they um, um, affect the child. Dye in their hair. It's got chemicals that goes through their hair, through their head, through their scalp, into the system. They even say, don't use those things when you're pregnant. People's love for themselves is greater than their love for their child or for their soul. Is there anyone here that can, can actually say that this has, gone, has not gone out of hand? These things with the looks and the makeups and the and the muscles and the bodies and this and that everything's everything's, everything's all at that anyway. Let's leave that because it makes me sick. We'll go on to Saint Nectarius. He feared that he might become proud. That's what a, that's what a spiritual person fears: pride, because the devil fell from pride. Adam and Eve fell from pride. Judas hanged himself from pride, and the Pope fell away from the church from pride, etc., etc., etc. Pride is the worst cancer, spiritual cancer. People say, no, cancer's the worst. Breast cancer, prostate cancer, this cancer, that no no. Those things they can they, you can get through it or you might die. The main, the main thing is your soul saved and your soul lives forever. So what? Some people might I'm not and they don't laugh, I'm not saying it's a joke. Some people might get cancer, they might die with one breast because the other one was cut off because of cancer. That's not important. What's important is that whether you die with one breast, no breast, or other other parts of the body that people that have have cut out because of this of this disease, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we are saved. That's what matters. And the worst cancer, worse than that, because cancer is a, a lot of times is a is a stepping stone to be saved. A lot of people are saved through those sicknesses. The worst cancer is pride. Because pride cuts us off from God more than anything else. So, what did he do when he noticed that he was, he was scared of falling to pride? He took to great fasting, not allowing himself even water in the Egyptian heat. He would, all, he would also on his knees reverently read the canon of St. Andrew of Crete, the canon of repentance which is read during Great Lent, some of you know, by fasting and tearful prayer, he was seeking God's help so as not to fall into pride and other passions. Look at that. See so the formula? The formula for pride is fasting and prayer. This type only comes out with fast and praying, prayer. Now some people might say, no, but Christ was referring to the demons, that these type only come out with prayer and fasting. Pride is a demon. And we all have it to some extent. And that's why uh, um, fasting, prayer, and um, um, are a great help to gain victory over the passions, as well as, of course, doing the commandments and all those other things I said. Um, love of glory, love of power, lack, lack, lack of life. See, when a person becomes high, gets a high position, that's what happens, they begin to love the glory, they begin to love the power, they begin to have no much love and compassion for someone because when you're proud and and you feel that you're so great, you just your heart closes up. Christ said, as Saint Nectarius wrote on the piece of papers on the tobacco, "If you want to be great, then become the servant of all." So, what is this? What is this um, canon of repentance? It's a great canon which Saint Andrew of Crete um, put together, and it's I'll just read a couple of. A couple of verses, so you can get an idea of what the saint read. Is one of the verses says, "Spare, O spare the work of your hands, O Lord. I have sinned, forgive me. For you alone are pure by nature, and none save thee is free from defilement. And though I have sinned, O Saviour, yet I know that you are full of loving kindness. You chastise with mercy and a fervent compassion. You see me weeping and run to meet me, like the father calling back the prodigal son. And it says another one: No one has sinned against thee as I have, yet except even me, compassionate Saviour, for I repent in fear and cry with longing against thee alone have I sinned. I have transgressed, have mercy on me. And the last one, when you sit upon your throne, O merciful judge, and revealest thy dread glory, O Christ, what fear there will be then, when the furnace burns with fire and all shrink back in terror before thy judgment seat. These are orthodox right, um, hymns. And that's what our church uh, has... A lot of these, which helps us come. That's why in the monasteries, monks tend to be a bit more inclined to humility because they read these things continually in the Octoechos, etc. But you can read these things in a lot of the canons and services of the church. And that's what the saint did fasting, prayer, and um, these services, etc. With much love and sacrifice, he served the flock, the Greek Orthodox Christians there. He helped those who were suffering from poverty, illness. Afflictions and despair. See, the balanced spiritual life, works of mercy, not just praying, not just fasting, but also um, performing works of mercy. Helping the poor, helping the sick, helping the afflicted, helping those in despair, the suicidal, the mentally ill, etc., etc. Whatever money he would receive from donations and his pay, he would give to those in need, many of whom were homeless. Therefore, many of these poor, suffering souls depar- depended on his charity. And the people seeing that the, the new priest worked with zeal, that the new priest worked with zeal and love of God, loved and honoured him greatly. They were re- very impressed by him. They came to understand that he was not like the other priests interested that he was not like the other priests. I'm sure there might have been some priests, but this, he was exceptional, uh, especially in the fact that he helped those in need. In January 1889, three years after he was ordained a priest, the Metropolitan of Pentopolis, which, is, which means in Greek five cities, which is in present day Libya, suddenly passed away. Patriarch Sophronius nominated three candidates, which is usually the Orthodox practice, for this position. Archimandrite Nectarius and two others were elected. Archimandrite Nectarius was eventually chosen of the three. He was informed of the decision and was offered the position. He was very surprised by this offer. He had never desired to become a bishop. With extreme humility, the Holy Nectarius accepted the high position of Metropolitan. Let me tell you just a quick, a quick story. There are, there are many who say, oh, I never expected it once there was this Archimandrite who, um, when he died, they found a trunk in his room. And in the room they found bishop's vestments. They thought, wondered to, the, to, to themselves, why would he have bishop vestments when he's not a bishop, he's a priest? And they, in there they found a note. And the note was, said, I never expected to become a bishop. It was the note that he was gonna read if he, be, if he were to become bishop. But he already had his clothes from beforehand. But Saint Nectarius wasn't like that. He truly had humility, and he um, accepted the high position of metropolitan in order to be able to serve people. Patriarch Sophronius, together with two other bishops, participated in the consecration of the blessed Nectarius. He was not known, so he was now known as Metropolitan Nectarius of Pendapolis. At his consecration, he was 43 years old. He truly. Considered himself unworthy of being a metropolitan, as can be seen by this prayer. He made a little prayer. Why, O Lord, have you elevated me to such a high position? I only asked of you to become a theologian and not a metropolitan. From my youth, I was asking you to grant me to become a simple labourer of your divine word. Um, And you, O Lord, have now put me to the test with such things. You're saying to God, you've put me to the test, meaning this is a very big position and he didn't feel that he could that, that he was worthy. He didn't, you know, he felt inadequate to be able to perform his his duty as that, even though out of obedience he accepted it. Nevertheless, I submit myself, O Lord, to your will, and I plead that you will cultivate in me what? Humble-mindedness and the seed of the rest of your holy virtues in a manner that you know. So he took on the position, which is a lesson when we take on any position in the church. Whether it's to become a deacon or a monk, a deacon or a priest, a bishop, etc, we must take it with humility asking God to give us humility so as not to fall away from pride as many have done. Despite all the honor he was receiving, he lost nothing of his humility and continued, as before, to serve his flock in Cairo, in particular the poor and the hungry, the homeless, the suffering and the sick something that bishops don't usually do. St. John, for example, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, he would go to hospitals, he would go, even though though he was a bishop, he would serve the people. A lot of times bishops just stay in their office. Metropolitan Nectarius was often not paid his proper salary. Sometimes months would pass that he would not receive his salary as metropolitan. However, whatever salary or donations he did receive, he gave away straight away to the poor and the needy. Because of his disregard for money, people would say about him, with regard to the metropolitan of Pentapolis, and money, they are opposites. In other words, the metropolitan and money are opposites. In what, he, what, he, what they're trying to say is the metropolitan never wanted to keep the money. He, whatever money he would get, straight to the poor and for other church needs. Now, someone asked me, as I were helping me type up a bit of this, because I don't type, but I dictate, and he said... Why didn't they pay him? And I said to him, that's a good question. The reason why they didn't pay him a lot of times is because he was giving it away to the poor and the needy. If he spent it on himself, like the other bishops, on beautiful vestments and nice crowns and trips and expensive food, then they would have paid him. But because he was spending it on the uh, the poor, they were saying to themselves, why give it to him? He's just going to give it away anyway this is the this the lack of spirituality which existed at like today many churches are reluctant to spend money on the poor and the needy on missionary work giving out books or pamphlets or icons everyone's reluctant to give to to do these things and there's, there are of course some um wonderful parish priests uh, there's one in the greek orthodoxes gives a lot of um uh, uh money to the poor to help africa etc and um Look at the Catholics how they do their work. You go, we shouldn't go, but anyway, if you go to if if in the Catholic Church, they actually have the booklets, literature. They really keep their people up to date in their faith. You go to an Orthodox church. A lot of times you go there, and there's nothing. There's there's nothing. There's nothing to. They don't give nothing out. And that's not good. He was. um, He was finally. He he finally was able to fulfil his lifelong desire to publish a book of his collections of various beneficial saints. And t- you know that famous book that he kept from seven years old? and He was He finally, uh, the title of that book, of his book, was Theos, Thesaurus of Religious and Philosophical Saints. But because of his continual arms, given lack of pay, he became in debt to the printer. Like he gave it to the printer, he goes, I'll pay you back later. Because of Metropolitan Tariff's virtuous life, his enlightened preaching and his care for the poor and needy, everyone looked at him with admiration and reverence. Many were surprised that a metropolitan would closely involve himself with his flock, going out, helping the poor, etc. This was even more out of the ordinary than when he was a priest. Because of this, he was much loved by the flock, and he was their joy and boast. He did, In, in word, deed and conduct, he was a true example of a hierarch like those of old, like the saints of old. St John Chrysostom, many of these great saints who served their flock and just didn't up in offices and things like that. The enemy, however, who always plans evil and fights against God's servants was ready to sow his evil deeds against the saint of God. I was going to end it at that, but um, I've got 10 minutes to, might as well go into that and then we'll go, carry on uh, in the next talk the next part I want to do this part so the people were happy but the devil wasn't happy and the enemy however who always plans evil and fights against God's servants was ready to sow his evil seeds against the saint of God why? well because he's evil and secondly, God allows him. The devil can't do nothing that God does not allow, allow him to do. If, if the devil had full freedom to do what he wants, he would destroy the whole earth within seconds. He's got that much power. But God does not allow him. And whatever he does to us, he only does because God permits it because of our sins or to help us to become stronger. There's a lot of reasons. As time went by... The Holy Metropolitan's popularity and admiration grew among the people. This roused the jealousy and hatred of some bishops and higher clergy in the Patriarchate of Alexandria. They did not like the new Metropolitan because they knew he was different from them. And that's obvious. They were blinded by their jealousy and hatred like the Pharisees of old. And like they were jealous of Christ because people were going to him. People liked him. People honoured Christ and they were jealous. They go, oh, we're losing. Look, can't you see the- everyone's going to him? Therefore, they could not acknowledge his genuine virtue and holiness. They didn't want to look at that. Instead, they accused him of pretending to be pious. In other words, that he was a hypocrite and a deceiver, a, dis- a, di- uh, uh, a disease which they themselves had because they were the hypocrites. But, you know, whatever's in us, sometimes we project onto others. Well, that was them. They were deceivers because they weren't really spiritual people. They acted spiritual and did their job as priest or bishop, but they were dead spiritually. And St Nectaris wasn't like that because he was a real bishop. They noticed that and people noticed it and people started to go to him and talk about him, and love him, and respect him, and push them to the side. Like when Christ came with the Pharisees and all the hype, the priests and all that, the people started going to Christ because they noticed that he was he was the genuine um, person there, uh, and the others were not, and they didn't like that. So what did they do? These poor possessed people. They then spread rumours that Metropolitan Nectarius wished to possess the patriarchal thr- throne, an ambition which never entered his mind. Saint Nectarius didn't even want to become a bishop, never even thought of it. He did want to become a priest, but not a bishop. Some people do desire, and doesn't mean that's bad, because it says in the Bible, if you desire to be a bishop, that's a good thing, but you must also have humility so as not to fall into pride, etc., etc. So nothing wrong with desiring it, but not like the guy with his... Trunk that pretend that Because I never wanted to become I knew a, 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 an archman drive from Greece who helped me a lot in my spiritual life in the beginning, and he was um, an abbot and he uh, people wanted him to be the bishop of this certain island in Greece, but of course they put in another guy, a riffraff there and um, he didn't beca- but he wanted to become does that mean he 's proud no he wanted to become because he had a true desire to serve the people of that island and the people loved him but you know unfortunately the, the he, another person was appointed <clears throat> who later on he went to he went to Rome and would pray there with the Catholics etc and uh, when he came back after he did that he just died suddenly of um something i don't know what he died of but he just died well, that was it finished some people which i'm not saying that but some people say well it's a punishment this and that i don't know but it is against the church canons to pl- to pray with those who are of different faith he went there he prayed with them and then he came home did he have time to repent i don't know did he have time to confess i don't know N- maybe he did repent on the way back on the planet i don't know but why would he have gone there in the first place but anyway, that's who they made bishop. And this person later on died, this, this archman died, never having become a bishop, but he wanted to. But St Nectarius didn't want to. That was, that, that was him. Different people, different things. So um, uh, he did not pay attention to the gossip and accusations that he pretended to be pious in order to get that position. The saint made no attempt to justify himself, but placed all his hope in the promise of Christ who, had say, who has said... Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's Christ's exact words. Blessed are you when people speak evil of you. Woe if people speak all highly about you. And that, it, that, that's part of the, Christians, the, the Orthodox faith that those who want to live in Christ will be persecuted, etc. Instead, with a good conscience... He continued to walk the path of the Lord in all righteousness and truth. He knew he didn't want to become patriarch. He ignored them. He continued on with his work. But rumours were not enough for these evil clergymen, bishops and priests. They went a step further and slandered Metropolitan Nectarios to patriarch, to patriarch Sophronios, saying that he was pretending to be humble and pious only because he was after the patriarchal throne. They claimed that because of his popularity with the people, was reaching such a high level he would be able to have the patriarch dethroned and have himself elected in his place. Offness but that's what they said to him. Now let's see if the patriarch believes in them. The patriarch was troubled with this accusation because he knew that Metropolitan, Taris, his spiritual child, was truly loved by all the people, he knew that, and that he performed all his duties in a godly manner. The patriarch also knew that the holy metropolitan sincerely showed love and reverence toward him and considered him as his great benefactor and spiritual father. Because remember, he sent him to university, ordained him a priest, gave him all these positions, and then even made him metropolitan. So the patriarch knew that Metropolitan Nectarius loved him, etc., etc. So he came now, what's going on with all these accusations? Unfortunately, the patriarch believed the false accusations of the enemies of the Blessed Nectarius. The patriarch lost confidence in the Holy Metropolitan, started to doubt, maybe it's true. He actually believed that he was in danger of losing his throne and therefore began to mistrust the Holy One. Without speaking to the Metropolitan, the patriarch decided to write him a letter. He didn't ask him to come in to his office and say, "Um, is it true what I'm hearing? So one day... Metropolitan was in his room and a deacon came, knocked on the door. He had an official letter from the patriarch. The letter read as follows. This is from Sophronios. It says, The Metropolitan of Pentapolis, Nectarius, is relieved of his duties as Administrator of the Patriarchal Office of Cairo, as well as Patriarchal Representative and Member of the Synod of the Church. His eminence is allowed, however, if so he pleases, to retain his room for sleep, in studying and writing, to take meals in the dining room with the other clergy, and to remain in general on the patriarchal grounds. Furthermore, he is allowed to perform the sacraments when called upon, such as matrimony, baptism, funerals, memorial prayers for the dead and feast days. He is forbidden to travel to to other cities within the jurisdiction of the Patriarchate, even to the old city of Cairo, without authorised permission. In other words, he was knocked off his throne. Um, So he was allowed to stay in in the dormitory there, in the the patriarchal there. He was allowed to serve and do things which even a priest can do, but he wasn't allowed to travel anywhere and he wasn't allowed to be a bishop anymore. After reading this letter his eyes became teary. The deacon seeing this was unmoved and in an abrupt manner said don't even attempt to visit the patriarch. He will not receive you anyway he is sick. The deacon left rudely slamming the door behind him. Patriarch Sophronius unjustly relieved Metropole Nectaris of his duties without an ecclesiastical trial or any explanation whatsoever unheard of in the Orthodox Church. You do not do that. You, you can't just dethrone someone. You've got to have a trial and then get evidence, like you know, like a civil trial, but it's a ecclesiastical trial. No explanation whatsoever. He was not even invited to discuss the matter. He was neither defrocked nor suspended from priestly functions, but was a bishop without a diocese. After the departure of the rude and horrible deacon, the Holy Metropolitan began to suffer from shock. <clears throat> This affected him to such an extent that he fell into despair, was overcome with anxiety, felt very sick and became extremely weak to the point of nini connapsin. People say, but saints don't do that and this. and They, they think that you see it's from these superhero things that people watch and the, the notion of Catholic saints and things like that, that it's like these people who are supernatural, super ordinary. But that's not how it is. He was, he was like, stabbed in the heart and he became sick and he was nearly ready to collapse. And we have two little examples in the Lives of Saints which was re- re- read on um, Bright Tuesday. Saints Raphael, Nicholas Irene, the newly relieved martyrs of Metellini, Lesbos, came out on Tuesday Bright Week. Saint Raphael, a priest, was tied to a tree by the Turks and they sawed his head off through the jaws. Saint Nicholas, his deacon, witnessed this and died immediately from the shock. See, he had a he shocked. I don't know what he had a heart attack. Whatever happened, he died. Obviously, the the, the other saint was died because they cut off his head. But the other the, the, the saint, the other saint, the deacon witnessing this died immediately. So people have a wrong view that saints don't get upset that they don't suffer that this is wrong. Saint Sophronios, not the one that we're talking about, this is Saint Sophronios who's commemorated on the 11th of March. The, the Arabs captured the holy city of Jerusalem he was patriarch of Jerusalem uh, in the seventh century. I think Saint Sophronius patriarch of Jerusalem became weighed down with the fatigue of confessing the faith and the distress of seeing the holy city in the hands of the Muslims. He prayed to God to take him from among the living on earth so that he would not witness the desecration of the holy places. Because when, they, when the Muslims would attack, they would do horrible things on the altar and, and a lot of things. And he didn't want to see that. He wouldn't be able to cope with it. And he prayed to God and said, take me so I don't see this. God heard his prayer and took Sophronius to himself. Another saint, which I can't remember the name, died from his grief of witnessing the persecution of the church. So this, but there are other saints who we read that they were strong, and um, you know, there's there's all different. Everyone's got different makeups. But to say that Saint Nicholas was a saint was unaffected is ridiculous. During this physical and spiritual crisis, which he also had, one remember in in. Um, Constantinople. Remember when he cried, and because he had no one, he had no clothes and all that? He began to pray for help and strength to be able to endure this temptation. He then felt a calming and joyous feeling come upon him. After this, he was able to say, "Thy will be done." See, when we go through afflictions, when we suffer, we turn to God, and we ask God to help us. And then, when God gives us His grace, then we begin to calm down, and we begin to accept his holy will. But people don't do that. They go through afflictions and problems, as I said, because it's disconnected. See, their everyday life, their spiritual life, supposedly the church, is separate to this. So this, they're going through afflictions and they don't bring the two together to pray. They just say, it's two different things. I can't... And, and It's just to pray during these times. And then you feel God's grace come, especially when you're in these situations like he was. He accepted this injustice and bitter trial with much thanksgiving toward God, because he was accounted worthy to suffer slander, unjust persecution, and dismissal without being responsible in any way. See, so when he came to himself after prayer, he was he had that strength to be able to say, "Thy will be done," and 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 to feel, um, as you see, the majority of his the majority of his persecutors who drove him out were actually bishops of the church. They can be described as false shepherds who were ambitious for power and glory. In other words, they were enemy of virtue. They don't, they, they don't like to see virtue. And I add enemies of God. St John Chrysostom actually said that someone asked him, what do you fear the most in this world? Because I fear nothing more than bishops, even though he was a bishop. Because a bishop in power, if he goes off, is like a monster. One of the Optina elders was asked the reason that people persecute, were persecuting the elders of Optina. He said that there are two reasons. Either they are leading a sinful life, doing really bad sins. In that case, they will go against the holy elders. Or, this is wonderful, they're leading a pharisaical life. In other words, they're doing everything supposedly spiritual, but their spiritual life is external. It's not internal. They also persecute those who are doing God's word. Actually, I find them. See, the others that are off, if they're smoking and they're doing bad, you can, you can see it and you kind of kind of say, well, who's going to listen to them? But these other people, these people act spiritual and yet they are alien to God's grace. They become enemies of God's grace. They don't want God's grace. We've done that in other talks. Anyway, Metropolitan Nectarist remembered the words of the gospel. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there's the kingdom of heaven. A servant is not greater than his master. Christ said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The saint was experiencing a similar temptation to those of the great and well-known Holy Fathers of the Orthodox Church, such as St. John Chrysostom, St. Athanasius the Great, St. Flavian of Constantinople, and many, many of our saints were persecuted. The clergy and lay people began to find out, the good clergy, and the lay people began to find out about the dismissal of Metropolitan Nectarius. His departure was sudden, and he was not given the opportunity to farewell his flock. The, fair, the faithful wept at the loss of such a good shepherd, for they were very devoted to him. Those who were especially hit by the news were the poor and needy, who depended on his charity, but the saint was nowhere to be found. He was told to stay there and just do it. No more than two and a half months had passed since the deacon had brought the first letter. Suddenly, another two letters came. The first letter says, The Metropolitan of Metpantopolis, Nectaris Kefalas, who, by the decree of May Third, 1890, was relieved from the administration of the patriarchal office in Cairo, as well as patriarchal representative administrator, was allowed, if he so wished, to remain in the patriarchate and continue to board there and perform any services he was called upon However, since then there has been great need of an administrator and trustee for the patriarchal office and one has been employed. It is therefore the, the belief of this office that the residence of his eminence in Egypt has become extremely unnecessary and thus by this patriarchal communication his eminence is asked to immediately remove himself from the patriarchate and go to wherever he chooses. He's he is hereby given the enclosed patriarchal letter of release as well as the necessary travel expenses of 1,000 francs. He is also notified that all his accounts have been fully paid and that he has received all his salaries up to the time it was necessary and that he has nothing more to be paid uh, by our patriarchal throne. And it was signed by Sophronios of Alexandria, 17th of July 1890. And the letter which came with it was his formal dismissal. His Holiness hereby gives, the letter, gives this letter of release to the previously enlightened metropolitan pedopolis, Mr Nectarius Kefalas, who, unable to become accustomed to the climate of Egypt, see the lies, is migrating and is allowed to perform his priestly duties wherever he goes, following, of course, notification permission of the local church authority, wherever he is. The present letter of release has been granted as evidence of the patriarch communication to be used as necessary. Alexandria, the 11th of July, 1890, Sophronius of Alexandria. That's the two new stabs. In other words, we don't want you here. You can leave. Um, we've paid you, which wasn't true. And because you can't accustom yourself to the climate, because they didn't want to say the truth, that he, was, that he was because of jealousy and hate and things like that. And then Sophronius wrote there, oh, because you can't accustom yourself to that, They They write those lies. I know about that. After he had read the letters he again felt hurt and sick. Tears flowed from his eyes. It should be noted that Metropolitan had never received his full pay and therefore what was written was actually untrue. And coming now to the end. Why was was Patriarch Sophronios's reaction towards the Holy Nectaris so severe? Why did he believe all these things? Why did he do what he did? He had earlier been Patriarch of Constantinople. Before he became Patriarch of Alexandria, he was patriarch of Constantinople for three years. But later on, due to political unrest in the Balkans, he had to leave Constantinople. I don't know why. Did the Turks throw him out? Why, I don't know. But anyway, he left due to some problems, and he left Constantinople. This would have made him somewhat paranoid of it happening again. So the enemies knew, okay, he was chucked out of Constantinople, he was thrown out. That's a good one, let's, let's, let's use that one to make him a bit scared. Also, as mentioned earlier, the patriarch had a weakness in his character. He had two extremes, either he liked you or disliked you. So now the Holy Nectarius has moved from being loved to being disliked. The combination of these two things of the, of the patriarch, one, that he's got this problem whether he loves you or he hates you. And the second thing, which was that he was thrown out of Constantinople for whatever reason, it was the perfect recipe for those people to come and whisper in his ear and say, he's going to take over your throne. And the bishop and the patriarch believe it, believed it. I'll give you one example of this. There, wasn't, there was a bishop some while ago, I won't say who. Anyway, he was um, very old as well. And this man, for some reason, he had this thing about homosexuality. And um, uh, he was very anti. Now, I I don't know why. Was he molested when he was young? I don't know what was wrong with him. But he had this problem. All someone had to do, if they didn't like someone, was to go up to this bishop and say to him, you know, that person, he's gay or something like that. That's it. Straight away, he would dismiss that person. So we have these people who um, uh, believe in rumours. Bishops unfortunately do tend to believe rumours without checking things out. Maybe they're insecure, I don't know. Some The really good ones, they don't believe, they'll call you in, they'll ask like our one here, who is um, like a wonderful person, comes, speaks, this and that, whatever. But these other people, they don't even ask you any questions, they say, okay, you're out, you're out, you're out. He then prayed for the patriarch, remembering all the good that he had done for him, regardless of the patriarch's recent horrible actions towards him. He even justified to some extent the patriarch's actions, that because he's very old and weak, he tends to believe rumours. He forgave the patriarch from the depths of his heart and vowed to love him and pray for him the rest of his life. This is obviously a sign of a holy person to be able to do that. He also, last page, he also forgave and prayed for his persecutors from the depths of his soul, those other bishops and priests. He prayed that God enlightened them to see their deeds and to repent. He could not bear the fact that their souls were in danger of losing eternal life. And that's why we have in the Jordanville prayer book, morning prayers, Save O Lord and have mercy on them that hate and wrong me and make temptation for me and let them not perish because of me, a sinner. When someone hates us, we're supposed to pray for them because their hate for us could be justified, could not be. And if it is justified, we have got to try and fix it up. But if it's not justified and these people just hate us for whatever reason... We can't just say, oh, well, who cares, whatever. We have to pray for them so that they don't lose their soul. We are required. Pray for your enemies. Love those who persecute you, Christ says. And if we don't, then we can't be saved. He understood that God allowed... So God says, our Father who art in the heavens and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God will not forgive us if we do not forgive those who are doing evil to us. St. Nectarius knew that and he prayed... That they be forgiven, he forgave them, and he prayed for them to repent so that they don't lose their soul. And he remembered the words. He I'm sorry, he understood that God allowed this suffering for his spiritual benefit. Thy will be done, he prayed. He also remembered the words from the gospel. Blessed are you when men when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. That's Christ's word. The people of Alexandria began to demand an explanation from the patriarch for the dismissal of Metropolitan Nectarius. The Holy One decided to secretly leave for Greece immediately in order to avoid a disturbance in the church of Alexandria because people were becoming very upset. They were demanding from the patriarch, why is this, why is this happening? And St Nectarius was scared it was going to become like problems, so he decided to leave. So, the slandered and persecuted metropolitan was forced to leave Alexandria with very little money, a few bags, and um, whatever money he had, he also had to pay off the printer. So basically he left with nothing, and he left Alexandria as, um, as a bishop with no throne. Basically he was in limbo and that's not happened before in the Orthodox Church. And that's where I decided to um, end the talk. So I went a bit quick because there was a lot of content but I'm glad that I got through my 51 pages and um, are there any questions or nothing really much? People are hungry. Any?
1: Uh, did you? Um during the time that he was growing up, did he have any contact with his parents? Like, oh, well, like I miss
0: something that, when I was. Well, they don't mention it, but uh, when he went, when he was living in Chios, for those years as a lay person, seven years, and then as a monk until he left, and um, when he went to study, he was going back and forth. I think his parents were still there. So they knew that he'd become a monk and all that. Yeah, well, they were there in, the, in Chios at the yeah. time. Any other questions?
1: It was not I just wonder, how come that someone who's 14 can look after themselves? I suppose it's probably God's help, but we see it sometimes in real life and some children are more mature than the other. So do you think it's biological or it's it's God's
0: grace? These children were brought up with responsibility. They're not brought up in front of the television, like today. The children of today are quite irresponsible. They don't understand responsibility. Most of them are like um, emotionally backward they haven't even, like they could be fifteen, but their emotions because they haven 't developed properly, their emotions could be that of a seven year old you 've got adults which are thirty or forty which act like eight year old kids because their emotions haven 't developed because when you sit in front of television when you 're not given love when you 're not instructed in in properly, then you don 't develop properly and um and that's why today people are getting married at 30 and 40, 40 years old, because they really are immature. I mean, people today, 25 and 30, are still partying. But in those days, people used to get married. Girls used to get married at 15, 16, and boys used to get married around 18. And it's more of a thing, and they had responsibilities, they had chores, they had this and that. Today, that doesn't that doesn't much that doesn't much occur. And as a result of that, children. Uh, today teenagers, very immature and um, and grossly uh, irresponsible. You know, that's why they want to remove homework. There's a whole movement now to remove homework from the schools. Uh, not all the schools, but some schools are saying that because the kids are going home, they're all day at school, then they go home and do homework again, and they're not doing any chores. And some people are saying, well, you know, why don't they do... Proper homework, which is helping with the kitchen, helping with duties, helping with chores, to make them responsible, because these people are growing up and are totally worthless. They might know um, the three types of rocks, igneous, metamorphic and sedimentary, but that's, you know, they might know some algebra, but they can't fry an egg. So um, I don't know, what are are you going to do with them? And and they've got to have mummy to do it all for them. So it's a bit too much. Any other question? Um, Regarding the talk... Say what happened um, after the, with the patriarch and the rest of the bishops today give me your address I'll send it to Serbia because that's part two oh. <laughs> I'll send you a gift to Serbia I'll send you part two if you like and because um, the the family here is leaving they're going to Serbia for good and um, so uh, yeah I can send it to you just after you email me, but we're going to have a part two. If I say it now, then people are going to get upset. They're going to say, you sport the second part of the story. God willing, in six weeks' time, we're going to do the paraklesis in English to the saint, and then we're going to go on to part two. Stand up.
1: Son hath arisen from the grave on the third day. Shine, shine on you Jerusalem, for the glory of the Lord hath arisen upon thee. Dance now and be glad, O Sion, and do thou exhalting the arising in whom thou didst bear.
0: bear. Christ is risen from the dead by death, has a on death and those and grace have bestowed life.